Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 30 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dame, and as always, I'm joined at the hip like a bad sitcom episode involving glue with <laughs> Matt Feuerstein. Matt, you're right here next to me, pressed up, bone to bone. Yeah, bone to bone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I almost feel like it would have been funnier if I didn't go for the obvious joke, right? Exactly. But I did. Boom. So, um, <laughs> so I'm in Canada now um, because I've been glued to Trevor. And it's now, and, here. yeah, and now I um, I don't know. I go wherever he goes. Um, <laughs> where, where where did we go today, Trevor? Uh, lots of trips to the grocery store, but then the other grocery store that has the better apples, which is an annoying detour, but you're slowly getting used to it. Lots wait, lots of trips to the grocery store today or just like in general? Well, uh, in general, but you know, depending on how hard it is to find those apples, we could be talking upwards of three trips. Yep. <laughs> bone, bone to bone getting apples. <laughs> Jeez. Three. And, uh, you know, when you're... When you're <laughs> When you're this is this, this this episode is aptly named because I think this is the conclusion of our podcast. Yeah, yes, this is the conclusion. This is <laughs> also don't. I mean, it's either this or unless we're covering a Ring of Honor show called the Apple Event. I uh-huh. mean, those were the would be the two most fitting names I think for the I, show we're covering. I believe Bone to Bone was a show from like late two thousand and six. So <laughs> I prefer Bone to Bone too. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, happened a few years later. BJ Whitmer main event. Uh, <laughs> But if you uh, whether you're bone to bone or just solo boneless or any 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 matter of bone or non bone related in terms of your personal life, something that's going to go good with that what with those events is the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Check out ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. You can also join the conversations by signing up at the PWO forums. We've been online for over a decade, and with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads, our message board is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive, Take a deep dive in the microscope forum or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check out all of this and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. Matt, I think we should mention there's a couple new shows on the Pro Wrestling Only uh, podcast network. One I want to listen to, but I haven't had time yet, which is Television Time Remaining, which is a new Pro Wrestling Only podcast reviewing Mid-South Wrestling from late 1981 to 1987, one episode at a time. Who would cover old wrestling one episode at a time for like a, I mean, that's, in, that's madness, but seriously, that sounds like a fun thing. I've always, that's one of those things I've always wanted to dive more deeply into is Mid-South Wrestling, but just never had the time and probably will continue to not have the time. And then a podcast I have had the chance to listen to is Shimmer Herstory with uh, Stacy and Stephen Graham. And they are starting a podcast. They've had one episode so far where they're going to review every Shimmer event starting from the beginning. And Stephen was nice enough to even say that we helped inspire him to do that, which that's a very nice compliment. Yes, and I also listened to that episode. Um, they did a very good job. And I am, uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more of that one because Shimmer does not get the due that I think it deserves. I mean, I think that it is in some ways responsible for 
everything that's improved about American women's wrestling since it debuted 12 or um, 13 years ago. So I, um, I think that's a very, uh, uh, it's a very uh, worthwhile project for them to uh, endeavor to do. And I think they're, they've already started off on the right foot. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, I think they already had. I really enjoyed the first episode as well. I think they already have like really fun, just lighthearted chemistry. I think Stacy's really good. Like she had a couple moments where she really was able to tie in like more like modern WWE women's wrestling that like things that happened a few years ago that people like me would probably forget with what happened on that first Shimmer show. Just because so many people from Shimmer obviously have gone to WWE, and it's just. I feel like if you're interested in that topic and you like our show, you'll probably like that show. And it's also probably if you feel dirty after listening to some of the things that happen in early Ring of Honor, that's almost like the feel-good antidote show where you'll get to hear about like women's wrestling where it's treated with respect. I'm actually curious to hear as they go through it, like was there anything problematic on uh, Shimmer ever? Because <laughs> I think if there was ever a promotion where there wasn't, I guess there's, it's possible that that's it. <laughs> One of my favorite things, and something I was reminded of listening to that episode, is that the first Shimmer show, I think, had a all-men's dark match. Yes. Like, like they put that in the women's spot. I love that. Um, one other thing I should plug also that's not part of our network, but yes, occasionally you're allowed to listen to other podcasts, is uh, there was a – on the Shellshock network that's another network of wrestling podcasts, they they uh, did an episode covering Error of Honor Begins, and they said they were inspired by us to cover that, Matt. And again, we are like the velvet underground of wrestling podcasts. Everyone that listens to us either already has a podcast or is inspired to do one. Or dies within seven days. Definitely. Uh, yeah. A lot of heroin addiction in our fan base. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, <laughs> given the, the odds of like how, what's going on in the world with that, I mean, it's possible. Guys, <laughs> I don't judge you. I, uh, you know, I hope that you, uh, you get the help you need. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And uh, we actually have a little, some news uh, that happened between the last Ring of Honor show and this one for once. Uh, first, we'll go just a very tiny thing, but I thought it was interesting to point out. Between the last show and this one, I believe, or somewhere in that time frame, uh, there was – I'll just read from The Observer. There were two Velocity Special good matches as Haas and Benjamin – this is in WWE, obviously – as Haas and Benjamin beat Funaki and Dragon. And another was the Ring of Honor Special with Spanky and Paul London over John Walters and Brian Danielson. So I looked this up on YouTube, and you can, in fact, find – from Monsoon Classic, who is a great account on YouTube, who gets all sorts of old stuff. There is, in fact, like a, a, a sub-four-minute John Walters and Brian Danielson versus Spanky and Paul London match that occurred in this time. I saw that match, like, way back when. And, I mean, it's as good as you could ask for for a match of that length with guys who are that degree of over in 2003 WWE. So I, um, I think it's probably exactly what you'd expect, which is not all that bad. I wonder if it's weird for if it was weird for Brian Danielson to be like he had gotten a WWE developmental contract really early and then released and then you know the first Ring of Honor show he's one of the top names he's one of the top names of the US Indies and now Paul London and and Spanky who Spanky's more of a contemporary I would say than Paul London who kind of came up separately from him but like now he's the the enhanced one year later 
he's the enhancement talent for them. Like, I wonder if that would be like a weird feeling. Like, how'd you guys leapfrog me? But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think just like hearing him talk back then, I think he, uh, I think it probably did. Yeah. Do a number a little bit on his, on his psyche. Um, but you know, he, uh, obviously things worked out by the way, that, that dead in seven days reference was, was more of a reference to, um, the ring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, just to be I clear, we missed that. I completely missed that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I could see. Uh, now that I'm thinking, about, I could see how that would sound ominous if you did not know it was related to a movie about people watching a videotape where you died seven days after watching. Right. Exactly. So, just to be clear, no one's going to murder anyone here. Um, another thing, we get into some things during this period of ring of honor wrestling wars we we used to talk about that a lot in the early days of through the years because there was a lot of philly wrestling wars those quickly died down and there's another one that has died down because the observer wrote at this time ring of honor and 3pw which we're feuding have basically made up since rob feinstein blue mini and jasmine sinclair talked everything out at a wrestling convention in new jersey on november 8th I, I wonder what like i wonder like what were these issues that we could talk out it's like hey let's pretend we're not different promotions like uh, <laughs> what's uh, how does it how does it work but and Matt, this is the thing I love. Uh, so Ring of Honor's website, th- this is like one of the weirdest things where they decided they were issued a statement saying that like they had ended this, and then basically twisted the knife on another feud in the same statement. So this is Ring of Honor's statement. Ring of Honor management is glad to report that it has patched up its differences with 3PW and the so-called Philly Wrestling Wars officially did. Now, if only certain promoters in the New England area could follow that example. So I love that, like, they're like, all right, this is done, but fuck you, Boston. Like, it just never ends. Yeah, you know, it's funny, though, because, like, with all these this, these wrestling wars and stuff, which, um, and, like, I mean, I guess we're not done talking about them yet, but um, yeah. it's like, you know, you had all these promotions, 3PW, CZW, ROH, MLW, which we'll get to. Um, it's like, really, only ROH, even at the time, had much of a rep outside of these regions like it felt like in terms of like the pr war roh really won like going away a long time ago in the sense of like roh had an identity roh really had buzz it had influence um you know by 2003 i think it still stood head and shoulders above the other promotions in terms of perception you know i don't know about like actual like live drawing attendance but that's not what it was all about at that point anyway yeah i think there was a lot of companies that the second Ring of Honor started to get a little buzz, they wanted that same kind of buzz, even though a lot of them were already sharing that pool of talent. It was just like – well, actually, that, that dovetails right into the big story that occurred between the last show and this show, which was Ring of Honor's relationship with MLW. Just another one of those examples like the recent show where – I think the last show where we had – we talked about, oh, AJ Styles and Brian Danielson are wrestling. Like that won't happen 15 years later. Like this is another thing where literally this week – I think a day or two a day or two ago, Court Bauer, the head of MLW, made a comment about Ring of Honor trying to raid their talent, and they've already signed away uh, PCO and ha- have not let him uh, finish up. They wanted him immediately, so a bit of a few, you know, a bit of a tension between those two companies. Well, the MLW did exist for a brief time, fifteen years ago, and there was a lot of tension between them and Ring of Honor back then. Um, Aaron Taub, who uh, was formerly of the great Everything Evolves podcast that has ended, he pointed out to us, I think, on Twitter a few weeks ago, like, 
He's been watching the shows with us, although he complains that he's gotten farther ahead of us on the shows. But he uh, was saying, like, you go back and read these observers from the time. And Dave Meltzer was talking, uh, like, a hell of a lot more about MLW than Ring of Honor. Like, he was giving full articles to them. And really, and it's weird, like, at the time, for some reason, I mean, maybe it's because they were getting some TV, like, I think right around this time. In like a last ditch effort, MLW had signed a deal with the Sunshine Network that ECW used to be on. They had some TV in some areas, but like MLW was kind of like the great hope of a third promotion that would be do something and not Ring of Honor. And there was a tension between the two companies in part because I would imagine um, MLW would use a lot of the same talent and even angles that were in Ring of Honor. So like they also ran the Raven CM Punk feud after Ring of Honor started it. They, uh, well, let's just get into the story. Um, in the Observer, Court Bowers, Major League Wrestling, has booked TV tapings for January 9th in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory, January 10th in Elizabeth, New Jersey at the Rexplex, February 13th in Philadelphia, and February 14th and March 12th in Elizabeth. This date is noteworthy because Ring of Honor has the same building booked for a convention and show on the next day, all at main Ring of Honor venues. This is definitely going to cause heat since the Philadelphia main event is Low Key versus Homicide, which was the scheduled Ring of Honor main event when Low Key canceled out. As far as running the same buildings, Bauer did call Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky after it came out that he was running the same buildings, saying the idea of doing a wrestling war would benefit everyone. But Sapolsky wanted to stay out of it, figuring you can't have a wrestling war when both sides are using much of the same talent. So I guess before we get he got, to the he's list, got He's got a point. Yeah, like, it's like, ooh, you're running Raven versus CM Punk, and we also are, like, are you going mean, to do a match where, like, they face each other in a mixed tag? Like, just... No, um, Homicide versus Homicide. Raven but, versus yeah, before, Raven. <laughs> before we get to the rest of the story, it, it's worth noting that match did happen low-key versus Homicide. I just, like, I don't know if I ever knew this or just was reminded of it. But Loki did wrestle Homicide in MLW. You can watch it for free on MLW's official YouTube if you just search for you know something like Homicide versus Loki MLW. It is a like a full 15, 20 minute something match. I think like a fifteen minute match. Uh, Eric Gargiulo, the uh, Ring of Honor's original play by play commentator for two shows, is doing commentary, and on color mat is Julius Smokes. Oh it's- man, that I didn't know. <laughs> Um, and, and also crazy, I didn't have time to watch the full match, but I like fast forwarded to see the ending cause I wanted to see something and Loki in fact loses clean to homicide. So I don't know. That's gotta hurt. Lot, yeah. Like I, I really do believe what was, we talked about in the last show that Loki did change. It did not want to lose to homicide and ring of honor. I think. I'm just mostly I'm siding with that based on Loki's history and the fact that even Homicide said Loki basically did the exact same thing to him in USA Pro once. But like it is wild that Loki was willing to job to him clean here. I don't know if maybe this was after the story got out, so Loki was just like, you know what? I'm gonna save some face here, or I'm gonna make Ring of Honor look deceitful by doing this. But I mean, he did lose to him, I think, clean. It looked like uh he was going for the dragon clutch and then Homicide does like an ugly roll up to counter, and he gets the three count. Yeah, I mean, listen. If his if his logic was it matters much less in MLW than it does in ROH, he turned out to be right because 
you know, if that match had happened in ROH as a main event, it would be much more remembered than the match that you're talking about. Yeah, like I do not, I did not remember this match. And uh, we'll go to some a later observer. As far as whether Ring of Honor and MLW will work together, I guess there is an answer. With MLW debuting on January 9th in Philadelphia, Ring of Honor will be sending talent, including Christopher Daniels, who canceled his MLW booking the same night, AJ Styles, Dan Moff, and others, to what is now billed as a joint Jersey All Pro Wrestling and Ring of Honor show on January 9th in Woodbridge, New Jersey, which is less than an hour from Philadelphia. A lot, if not all of the established indies in the area seem to be going after MLW and there have been rumors of impending dirty tricks as well as pressures on talent that works for other area offices to cancel. Then we go to another later observer after ring of honor announced partnering with JAPW for a show to counter the MLW show that same night combined with rumors of talent announced for MLW pulling out uh, Christopher Daniels did and rumors were that others were pressured to follow MLW ended up moving both its January 9th and 10th shows to Florida instead the whole point of running the Northeast was to avoid the heavy transportation costs of flying in so much of the talent that is Northeast-based. It's clear that from a public standpoint, they didn't want to get the stigma of being an enemy promotion to the hardcore fans, which killed XPW dead when they came to Philadelphia. In addition, there were all sorts of problems having to do with dirty tricks by the existing companies that were already happening. Plus, some of the talent that works for the other groups in, the, in that market had been given us or them ultimatums that was going to cause them to lose some key talent at to just lose to some key talent. Um, it all added up into to returning to base things in Florida, and most future shows will be held there. Well, that was one of the shortest territorial wars on record. Dave ends his column with. And then finally, one tidbit from the Pro Wrestling Torch at this time. Major Re League Wrestling, Christopher Daniels, CM Punk, and Mafia are no longer working for MLW. All three have heat with the office for backing out of a planned East Coast show in favor of accepting bookings for Ring of Honor slash Jersey All-Pro event that was running in direct competition. The bulk of the heat stems from the wrestlers notifying MLW via email after previously accepting the bookings. So... Yeah, I mean, we. I, I believe people mentioned this early on to us that, like, when we were talking about the Philly Wrestling Wars, how you, while fit people did shitty things to Ring of Honor, they weren't saints either. I mean, definitely Ring of Honor's hands are not clean, I would say, in this story. It, to do, like, us or this ultimatums and have guys pull out the last second and all this sh stuff. And the JAPW Ring of Honor show did actually happen. It will. It's not what I would consider an official Ring of Honor show. There's no commentary. It's not something we'll be covering, but it is out there. Um, Samoa Joe wrestles Balls Mahoney on it, and they also do a weird match where uh, Devito teams up with uh, Trent Acid to wrestle Johnny Cashmere and HC Loke. So a dream, a dream match if there ever was one. <laughs> I, I think a uh, cage match like subtitles it an incredible partners match. Like this I'm, is I mean, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so just it's weird how ten year fifteen years later, still the same and Yeah, I don't know if there's much more to say just then like MLW died pretty shortly after this and they weren't able to ever get like a big profit thing. You read the observer and they were talking about, Oh, maybe we'll get like streaming money or an overseas deal or something. And it, nothing materialized. And it ended up being gone for a long, long time. Like to me, it's still shocking that MLW came back and is now like a somewhat notable promotion. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I, it, you know, it's the same because of who's involved, I guess. But I, it's not like there's any con- like continuity between the two versions of MLW. Um, they still use Teddy Hart in low key, which is, I mean, that's, I guess that's the most continuity. Court yeah. Bauer is still making sure low key and Teddy Hart get work. Yeah, I mean, I guess it says a lot about what's happened to them in the past 15 years, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, one more thing before we get into the show proper from the Ring of Honor website using the old Wayback Machine. Uh, this is a story they wrote. In an interesting twist, Ring of Honor world champion Samoa Joe has said that he will find a tag team partner to go after the Briscoes tag team titles. Joseph, the Briscoes want to come after him. He'll try and take what's most important to them and Cornette. In another odd twist, Joe is pleading his case to Ring of Honor officials to allow Homicide to be awarded a title shot, to not be allowed to award a title shot. Homicide should be award a shot for defeating Joe in a brutal no-holds-barred match on October 25th. Normally, if someone defeats the champion, they get an automatic title shot. Joe has stated that since Homicide used a noose, that the victory does not deserve a title shot. Rumors going around the locker room is that Ring of Honor world champion Samojo has avoided putting the belt on the line every show now because he is banged up and suffering from numerous lingering injuries due to his tough main event schedule as Ring of Honor world champion. Many feel that Joe's title ring could be in jeopardy. So I thought this was interesting. One, like the rationale they get, they gave for uh, not having Homicide get the title shot so quickly, which I think is good that they actually went the extra mile to justify why a guy could beat Joe and not get the title shot for months. But Matt, the thing that really surprised me is I didn't realize that they were already doing the um, Joe is getting hurt, you know is getting injured and beat up and could be losing the title soon. Like that's something they talked about a lot in 2004. I didn't realize they had already started doing that line like over a year before he lost the title. But they have yet to start actually talking about it on the home releases. Yeah. So, and you know, I've talked about this before, how there's like multiple continuities. There's like the live show continuity and then there's, there's the DVD continuity. And it's not always the same because of, I guess, delays in releases of DVDs. Um, but I'm very curious to hear when commentary starts mentioning that about Joe. Yeah, it's just weird because I, I, I just did not remember it being over a year before it ended, them starting to plant that seed. But clearly that was something in Gabe's mind. I mean, probably Gabe did not have an endpoint for Samoa Joe's title loss at this point because Austin Aries wasn't even in the promotion yet, and that's the guy he loses it to. But Right, he probably, had, he probably had some ideas, but nothing that he had committed to, Yeah, obviously. Like, I'm going to ride this until I find, like, the right time and guy to switch this to, but that would be quite a long time. But until then, we're left with the conclusion, not of the podcast, just have to say that one more time, of <laughs> that's the title of this Ring of Honor show. The conclusion took place November 28th, 2003, in Fairfield, Connecticut, at Sacred Heart University, in front of what the Observer reported was a crowd of 450. Mike Johnson was there live. He said it was 400. I mean, not that big of a difference, although in indie wrestling, 50 people can actually be a significant difference to your pocketbook, I imagine. Um, Mike Johnson said, this was down from the previous time the promotion ran the facility. I'm all for Ring of Honor running a university, but I'd like to see how they draw when the students who actually dorm on campus are attending the school when they run a show. And I guess that's a reminder for me, the old Canadian, that, uh, yeah, November 28th was the day after Thanksgiving. So Black Friday. Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird to say that. Like, I can understand because a lot of the kids on campus probably did go home. But at the same time, Thanksgiving, that, that time has n- historically been a huge time for wrestling shows. People, oh, Yeah, but not, not, not by 2003, though. 
Yeah, I guess not. Because, I mean, WWF stopped running Survivor Series on Thanksgiving after 1990, and they stopped having it on Thanksgiving Eve by 1995. So we're still talking eight years since Thanksgiving was even like an automatic part of planning that show. So I think we're sort of at the point now where it's like wrestling is no longer that family affair uh, that it used to be, and I guess ROH probably never was, right? That, that's that's ma- like <laughs> ROH is for young men, like who go, and that's really it. <laughs> it's for uh, young men who are horrible to their wives, as we'll get to later. Um, well, no, no, I mean, I don't want to paint everyone with that brush, but like, yeah, like people sometimes try and defend the demographics of Ring of Honor shows, and like, I feel like sometimes the fans definitely got painted with a too negative brush, but to be honest, let's say there aren't many kids and women at these Ring of Honor shows at yeah, the time. Yeah, I'm overgeneralizing, obviously, but I went but to no, plenty of right. Ring of Honor shows back then, and it's mostly young men. I mean, yeah. I think if you went to, let's say, a WWF Survivor Series show on Thanksgiving in 1988, there would be plenty of young men there, but there would also be children and families and you know older people and yeah. – there were some of them at Ring of Honor shows, but very, very few, all things considered. Exactly. There were a uh, few dark matches on the show. None of them obviously made the DVD. Although, again, I think they're all part of the Ring of Honor Uncensored DVD. This was one of the odds and ends things, this little pre-show card that made it to that DVD. Bison and Slugga, so Slugga still working one more time for Ring of Honor, defeated the solution of Havoc and Papadon in 3 minutes, 21 seconds. Slick Wagner Brown defeated Jimmy Cash in 6.02. So Slick Wagner Brown really like ending his Ring of Honor career, basically being like a dark match fixture, which is weird. Um, Allison Danger defeated Sarah Stock in 4.16. Sarah Stock ended up being like one of the as Dark Angel, one of the real heralded women's wrestlers of her generation. She probably came along too soon. She'd probably have had a much better career if she came along now. And she's been uh, working in WWE developmental as a trainer for years now, I think. And it's kind of sadly fitting that she gets a Ring of Honor match and it's a dark match that goes four minutes. But finally, the main event of the dark match is Special K of Angel Dust and Hydro defeated the Ring Crew Express in six minutes and seven seconds. Women's wrestling in ROH has not has just not been the same since Alexis Lurie left, in the sense that it has not existed since Alexis Lurie left. <laughs> I'm not seeing anyone do a moonsault and hearing about how... Uh, great an athlete they are and then in the next breath them also talking about how good her flat tummy looks and we really miss that (laughs) you're giving me the willies Uh, we start the show proper what we see on the dvd with gary michael capetta in the ring in mid-sentence a ref is with him holding some envelopes and gary's about to pick one for the lottery from hell main event tonight between cm punk and raven so this is basically like a spin the deal wheel make the deal thing without the wheel yeah i was i was gonna say like I, listen i know it's low budget but could you try to make it look like something's like that you're actually picking like, you uh, could buy one of those like bingo ball hoppers, probably from twenty bucks from a thrift store. Yeah, and, exactly. Like, take a ball out. Yeah, just like having a bunch of envelopes in your hand, and like reading the, your the answer from like a blank piece of paper. Like it, <laughs> this was just like this was just low rent, like as low of rent as low rent can go. I think in terms of trying to cover, <laughs> trying to sell this, uh, sell this gimmick. 
So they open one of the envelopes, and the stipulation for tonight will be a cage match. The crowd pops, like, I thought surprisingly big for this, and I wrote, thank God, because I would, if I was them, I would have been scared to death that they would have shit on the stipulation, given that, one, it's something that's already been done in the feud, and two, it was a match that wasn't well-received. But the crowd is, like, excited to hear they're going to get a cage match tonight. And also, according to um, Shane Hagedorn on an honorable mention podcast, it is not actually the the gimmick that won the poll for what they wanted the, this match to be. I don't remember what actually did win. He said an I quit match, I believe. And again, as always, great podcast. You should listen to it. They recently covered the show as well. So it's a good uh, little yeah, it's a supplemental compa- to companion piece. Exactly. That's the word I was looking for. But yeah, he claims that what won the poll was the I quit match. So – like clearly they clearly they were just hell bent on doing a cage match. I don't know why they decided to have the spin the wheel make the deal thing, especially since they didn't even have the theater of having a wheel. So um they should have just booked a cage match, but they yep, that's what happened. Read it out of an envelope. <laughs> um Ring of Honor was doing a lot of those like polls at this time and even like you get to book like the I think that show where they had AJ Styles versus CM Punk and Just Incredible versus Raven that was like you get to pick who faces who in, of these so maybe they just assumed that they could do that and get the match they want like they maybe they just assumed everyone's going to pick a cage match but if they did that obviously was not a correct assumption and I think it's pretty clear they did the cage match because they wanted a chance to get it right because like we talked about that episode I think beating the odds I pointed out in the shoot interview I had watched with CM Punk, he said he wished he could have done that match again. He hadn't done the match, this match yet when he recorded that shoot. And he was talking about, I would have done cage escape and there wouldn't have been all those crazy weapons and stuff. Well, it sounds like basically he was in that shoot basically laying out what he wanted for this match, which is like, let's get a do-over and do it my way. So let's let's see how it worked out. Yeah. So speaking of CM Punk, he comes out, he storms the ring, he chases out Capetta, he's holding an 8x10 of Lucy. Punk gets on the mic and he says he sacrificed more for wrestling than anyone in the building has sacrificed for anything in their entire lives. Punk says for the last two years he has wrestled three days a week. Punk then repeats the phrase, three days a week, like this sounds super impressive. And it's weird, (laughs) on, on one hand, like... For indie wrestling, at this time period, like, three days a week was usually what you maxed out at. So, I mean, it's not bad at all. It's not out of the ordinary. But, like, three days a week never sounds oppressive. If I was telling you, Matt, I'm really getting in shape. I'm going to the gym three days a week. Three days a week, Matt. Like, maybe I am in good shape. That doesn't sound impressive. Um Punk says he wrestled everywhere from Canada to Florida for little or no money or satisfaction. He says he missed his best friend's graduation. He missed weddings because of wrestling. He lost a girl because he chose wrestling over her. Uh, Punk gets a round of applause at this point for what I think is supposed to be a heel promo. The fans are like, you have sacrificed a lot, Punk. Good for you. Um, A fan screams at Punk to look at the fans instead of the camera because that's what Punk's been doing. Uh, Punk breaks his promo up to just talk to this guy and tell him, hey, I'm talking about a girl right now and you clearly don't know anything about girls. That gets another pop. Um, then so Punk, that, that's the, that's the easiest move to make fun of a fan in <laughs> our indie wrestling show, right? Yeah. Just be like, you never talk to a girl because Punk, you know, like half of them are, are like, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Punk should have just said, Hey, it's a DVD product. Yeah. And just kept on like, um, 
Punk holds up Lucy's picture and calls down the crowd some more. He says, if they want to call this a storyline or an angle, you go right ahead. But this is Punk's life. And I just groaned at that. that, that like, well, we are going to call it a storyline and an angle multiple times tonight. So, <laughs> uh, Punk then talks about Lucy being attacked from behind in Ohio. He says, yet again, Steve Carino told me Christopher Daniels is behind it. Punk says he will ruin the show and make the this the most miserable three hours of the fan's life if he doesn't find out what happened to Lucy. And then he leaves the ring and the crowd applauds him. It's re- this is going to start a really weird night for this yeah. angle. Yeah, way to put over the big main event match that he's having that he barely mentions. I yep. mean, I, I can't, I honestly can't tell if that's the point because, well, we'll get to it after when we get to the match. But yeah, he has like them. He's in the main event. He's on the show multiple times before the main event. He mentions the main event sort of, kind of once in a very, in a very dismissive way. And also, I was trying to think of what would sound impressive three days a week. And it all comes down to different things that you can eat. Like, I eat a full lobster three days a week. <laughs> something, yeah, like, then, something like that. Yeah, if you said that to me, I'd be like, man, that's living the high life. Like, yeah. Did he get a raise? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not many things where three days a week work, but that one definitely is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I eat a whole cheesecake three d- days a week. That would <laughs> that's like alarming. For help. Yeah, that yeah. seems alarming. <laughs> but, yeah, going, going to what you said. We're, I guess to give away a little bit of what's coming up on the show, this is going to be a through-line angle throughout the show of Punk asking people what happened to Lucy. And like you said, Matt, it kind of puts – like this is supposed to be the blow-off match for one of the biggest angles in Ring of Honor history in Punk's career. He's coming off a loss to Raven. Yeah, and if you watch this show, it seems like Punk barely cares about it. Like yeah, he's like, taking it completely for granted. Right, doesn't care. And again – I can't tell if that's intentional or not. Yeah, I, I I don't think it is. I think my theory is they've been so weirdly up and down since the Lucy angle about like some shows they really talk about a lot. Sometimes it's an afterthought. On um, this show, they go so hard in it. My belief is that they just um, – they probably woke up one day and was like, we're blowing – we're like revealing this angle in two shows at Final Battle – we really should make it seem important. It seems like they just woke up and decided that. So we're just going to have this like be a constant thing for the last two shows before we reveal it. But at the same time, it comes off as weird, not only because it's just so – not just because it's happening on this show with the blow-off to the Raven thing, but also because like this is not the first show Punk has been on since the Lucy angle. But yet this is the show where all of a sudden he gives a shit. Like why wasn't he doing the 8 by 10 thing – showing everyone the eight by 10 before now. What doesn't he have email? Why wasn't he asking people before now? Like he basically becomes like CM punk PI CMPI for this show. And he had like multiple chances to be that before this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're exactly right about why they're doing that now, but they could have balanced in with some Raven stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. You could have toned it down a little bit less on, on this show or a lot less and done it a bit more on like the previous show or something or the next show. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, this is the, that's, we should know this is the first half of ring of honors first ever double shot weekend. So they were literally going to do a show the next night in the Boston area. But next we have Colt backstage for good times, great memories. Colt says there isn't going to be any comedy tonight because he's all about the field of honor block final. I think pretty much every interview Colt Cabana has done for a uh, field of honor match has had him say something about it's not about comedy tonight even though every one of his matches has comedy in them 
Um, he says he's going to take out BJ Whitmer and Dan Moth and become Colt Cabana superstar. Colt says he's not here to make us laugh or bring us any special guests or do anything for us. And then seconds later, Colt introduces his first ever musical guest. He has a copy of Julius Smokes' CD, which I'll note that um, if you ever type the words Julius Smokes on Twitter, Julius Smokes will tweet you a link to his CD within seconds. So if you want to talk to Julius Smokes, that's how you do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the camera pans over to Julius Smokes, who starts singing. Colt starts playing a harmonica and sings Ebony and Ivory with Smokes. Uh, he almost seems to be kind of breaking up Julius Smokes a few times, which I found amazing. Like, that's not a side of Julius Smokes you see super often in Ring of Honor. They sing a tiny bit more, including Colt doing some sugar pie honey bunch. Between this and Brian Danielson calling a fan sugar pie at the last show, we are now are two consecutive shows where the phrase sugar pie has been used. Um, there, a new streak. Yeah, finally a streak we can get behind the sugar pie streak. Uh, there was no point to this segment. I have no idea if Colt is supposed to be a heel or a face, but I really did enjoy it. I thought it was a yeah. funny little segment. It was adorable. It, they clearly had not planned it out. <laughs> like, it was just a bunch of nonsense, but... Hey, sometimes you want a little bit of nonsense. Yeah, I mean this. It, it was. It's a fun segment to watch. Yes. But we get up to the opening match on the DVD proper. The Backseat Boys defeat the Outcast Killers in four minutes nine seconds. When Cashmere pinned Tortuga after the the uh, Backseat Boys hit the T gimmick on him. Um, Matt, I always usually throw to you the first match, but like, it, it's weird. Like, how much is there to say about a four minute? backseat boys match yeah i mean this wasn't really a match it was um you know i mean i guess the the main thing was it was you know basically a spot fest just to get the backseat boys to show off their offense i uh i'll mention the top five because i forgot to do it last time joe sposto thankfully did it for me but uh at the the bottom was punk and carino who who were tied because they tied in the last match that they had the four the four way at main event spectacles then matt striker then homicide then aj styles is the number one contender um, this match, uh, the one thing I noted is, even though there were moments where it looked like the uh, over the few months that the Outcast Killers were, you know, given more opportunities to show themselves to be uh, more than just jobbers, they were back to being just full jobbers here. Um, and yeah, that's it. The the Outcast Killers uh, fell all the way back down the ladder for some reason. Um, poor guys, and uh, the Backseat Boys looked like the Backseat Boys. <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, Outcast Killers got a couple, move, a little bit of wrestling here. It was not terrible as a four minute match, but it was basically like the Backseat Boys didn't do really almost anything except like every one of their signature moves. It was basically just like, here's the dream sequence, here's the T gimmick, here's like our little dancing spots. It was just like a, a TV sh- style, like showcase squash. Yeah, it was a squash match that you would see on WWF Superstars in 1991. Like that's, that's it, it, except with you know newer moves. Exactly, and uh, this is also part of uh, they're they're starting to hype that you know the Backseat Boys are getting back on a winning streak. They won the Scramble Cage, now they won this, and they're going to keep winning matches until they face uh, the Briscoes for the tag titles at the second anniversary show, and then they will never be in Ring of Honor again. Well, Trent Acid will but not Johnny Cashmere. Spoiler alert. Yeah, and they were doing an angle at the time on the on the Ring of Honor website. There was a little article clipping I found of 
They write, Jim Cornette has said he will never allow Ring of Honor tag team champions Jay and Mark Briscoe to defend the tag titles versus the Backseat Boys. As long as Trent Acid and Johnny Cashmere continue to use the same theme music Cornette's Midnight Express used. Cornette considers it disrespectful. The Backseat Boys have no plans of changing their music for Cornette. So they were like trying to build up an angle there. And I guess they are building up an angle, but it's really weird that like they're built. They're building to a tag title match, and that will be the end for them. And I guess they're kind of doing that with the SA2, SAT, too, because they're going to get a tag title match on the final battle pre-show with the Briscoes, and then that'll be it for them. So Yeah, it's going to be a new era pretty soon for tag teams. And I guess the only other thing to mention about this, when we've probably already talked about it too much, but like no mention of that Johnny Cashmere tension angle they shot a couple shows ago where, you know, it looked like they were teasing a breakup and then they win the scramble catch. And here they don't mention it at all. It's just a weird one show thing. They immediately abandoned. Yeah. They got back together without any explanation and then everything was fine. Yeah. Now, now they're going to go on a little winning streak. So, um, after the match, the back seats are celebrating in the ring when CM Punk returns to the ring with his Lucy eight by 10 and he grabs a mic. Punk asks the back seats if they saw what happened to Lucy in Ohio, um, again, I wrote in my notes, why has he waited this long? Also, email existed in 2003. Trent says he doesn't know and he doesn't care, and the backseats leave. Gabe says he kind of agrees with Trent. He doesn't care what happened to Lucy either. I, I feel like that's kind of harsh, especially when they had Rob Feinstein a couple shows ago like do a video segment on the DVD saying, like, hey, if you have any tips, fans, about what happened to Lucy, let us know. And now you have, like, the play-by-play guy for Ring of Honor being like, oh, I don't care. Like, who cares what, what happened to this woman that's never been seen again? Plus, this guy has to, like, sit next to CM Punk on commentary a lot. Isn't he afraid <laughs> that Punk will, like, beat the shit out of him? He's a bad man who uh, who is angry, you would think. <laughs> but, um, spoiler alert, on upcoming commentary – um, Punk will will literally say out loud, "Listen, Lucy's fine. She's in the WWE. She's in WWE now. So don't worry about that. But I want to know who did it. Like you know, just so. <laughs> so it's like yeah. they, they're trying to have it always. Yeah, that, that's that's the one real thi- weird thing about this angle is well, there's probably multiple weird things, but the idea that Punk even in the opening segment was like, you know, this you can call this an angle, but this is my life. Everybody knew where Lucy went, that she had signed a deal with WWE developmental. And this is one of those smarter, more informed fan bases and wrestling around this time period. Like they all knew where she went. So the idea, and I realize sometimes you can't always just say, Oh, they left you. I, I don't begrudge anyone for trying to do a wrestling angle, but the treat it as like a, such a life and death serious thing when everyone knows where, where she went. And Gabe on commentary says the whole Lucy situation is getting ridiculous. He says, there's no answers. He has to let it go. Punk again threatens to derail the entire show if he doesn't get answers. He asks a ring announcer, Stephen DeAngelis. He asks a ref, Paul Turner. What do they know? They don't know anything. Gabe says, and I quote, this is getting stupid now, which I can agree <laughs> with. Uh, John Walter's music interrupts as he comes to the ring. Punk, ever the old man in a young man's body, says, don't get smart with me, son, to Walters. I looked it up. John Walters is less than a year younger than yeah, I know. Punk. Um, I, I love that. Like, it's like your wrestling age is just how long you've been in a wrestling company compared to somebody else. It doesn't actually matter what your real age is. And even with that, what Punk's been in ROH, what, six months longer than John Walters? Seven months? 
Eight like months, he only, maybe. He acts like he's been like a ten-year veteran of the promotion. Like yeah. you know, like he he's done that with other guys too, where he's just like, oh, uh, what's your name? Like I don't even know you. <laughs> well, it's um, it's actually funny because that ties into the match because like there's a quote series of the present versus the future, um, and of course you know ROH is less than two years old at this point, so like all of these guys who are the present, you know, I guess they've been in ROH for a long time, but. They're also like the future in the sense of like this was like the promotion for the young, hungry up and comers. And well, how old homicide? Like uh, at this point, maybe like twenty five ish. Uh, I could, probably this late twenty. I think homicide's a little older than people think, but not that much. Uh, although I am so bad with time, but even like it's weird to think like Christopher Daniels was the wily old veteran. He's still wrestling. <laughs> like, right. Exactly. Yeah, Homicide would have been 26 at this point. Okay. You beat me to it. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, you, you are almost dead on. I, 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 I am never going to doubt you again, Matt. But... Well, that is the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt that. Uh, there's a moderate John Walters chant at this point, which... I, I, li- actually... I like to imagine they're actually literally chanting moderate John Walters. Because <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a reasonable moderate. chant. Stop being so extreme <laughs> politically. <laughs> uh, this is probably like one of the more over buildings for John Walters for some reason. They actually liked him a, a, a fair – not like – he wasn't super mega over but more over than I expected. Um, Walters doesn't know what happened to Lucy. Punk leaves the ring but not before he asks Homicide who's coming out for his entrance about Lucy. Mike Johnson was there live at the show and he wrote of this of this Punk segment – all of this was done on the fly without anyone knowing that Punk was coming out to the ring, which just showed how well everyone goes with the flow in the company and can play off what goes down. Matt, I don't think it was that impressive. <laughs> a lot of these wrestlers basically just said, uh, no, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, that's not a huge level of improv. You, you don't need to take a class in Chicago to know how to go, uh, I did not attack Lucy. Why don't you try going out there and being as good of an actor as John Walters and then we'll talk. <laughs> I would probably, knowing me, like how I do under pressure, just panic and be like, I did it even though I didn't. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Quit staring at me. Get this hit by 10 out of my face. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for Um, what I did to Lucy. That actually would have been great here Um, if, like, if somebody just admitted it or, like, somebody was like, I fell into her by mistake. I tripped over my shoes. I'm such a klutz. (laughs) Or <laughs> someone's just like, quit ruining the show. I did it. Are you happy now? Get to the back. Like, I yeah. did it. And they're like, well, what did you do to her? Uh, I don't know. What? Where were the bruises? I'll, I'll make something up. Yeah. I don't know. But <laughs> going on, we get um, to the first of three, as Matt, Matt mentioned, present versus future matches on this card. Gabe loved subtitles and little mini themes on shows. This was one of the first times he kind of did that in Ring of Honor. Uh, Homicide defeated John Walters in 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Uh, Dave wrote about this ma- about these matches when they were announced, these three future matches. One thing about Ring of Honor is that Gabe Sapolsky has sure learned from the mistakes of WCW and WWE about not having a constant freshening of talent in the top mix. It's funny that Dave mentioned that because I think he's right in a way, but at the same time, like it's Josh Daniels, Jimmy Rave, and John Walters in 2003. Like, Yeah, the only one that actually that becomes true about is Rave, and it's yeah. way down the line. But I thought this was nothing special, but I thought it was an above-average wrestling match. I thought there was a good mix of submission, of quick little submission work with stiff strikes. I mean, 
you would expect some stiffness in these in a match with these two. Uh, there's a bit of story early on even that I liked where Walters is kind of matching Homicide shot for shot on little things like face slaps or kick to the back where Homicide's basically being badass Homicide to him and Walters is like, well, I can do it too. He shows some gumption, Matt. That's the word for it. He shows some gumption, John Walters. Uh, Walters Homicide works over Walters' neck and it plays into the finish when um, – uh, I believe the finish was Homicide made him submit to the STF, I think. I forgot to get the finish for that match. But, yeah, it, it um, the only thing I would say is, like, it's a it's a fairly good match. But well, sometimes I say in matches, these guys have good chemistry or these guys have bad chemistry. I felt like these guys had no chemistry but not, like, negative chemistry. It was, like, literally – it didn't feel like they were, like, oh, these two really mesh well together. But it also didn't feel like they were clashing. It just felt like – they were two guys that could have an okay match with each other. I felt similarly about the quality of the match, although for me it was more about the length. Like, it just wasn't very long. But I thought it was pretty good for its length. I, I thought, like, the, the early wrestling was, like, aggressive and hot and heavy and, like, it, everything looked good. Um, you know, the, the typical, like, early match ROH, like, mat wrestling reversal stuff. I thought it was very good. And I thought Walters looked particularly good. And I really did like the... The way that the selling, you know, played into the match, you know, where Homicide was working on the neck and then like Walters tried like a, a bridge after a German suplex, but he couldn't because of the neck. And that led to the Lariat. Walters kicked out and that led to the STF. Um, I actually thought the chemistry was pretty good, but it was a short match. Not necessarily saying it even would have been better longer because, you know, maybe the fact that it was short, like gave it a little bit of pop, um, didn't overstay its welcome. But I would have liked to see those two wrestle again um, in a longer match to see what they could have done because I thought they did work pretty well together. And I actually probably enjoyed Walters here more than I have so far. So I think overall it was uh, it was pretty good. I'm um, you know like I guess what what did, what did you say like average to above average? I think that's fair. I, I would say I would say it's definitely above average. Like, yeah. I don't know if it's, it's it's not something I would like ever recommend to go out of your way to see, but I wouldn't call this average either. Like it was enjoyable. Yeah, it was it was enjoyable short to the point match. Um, and I think both guys worked really hard and homicide's still on a roll, I think. And I thought Walters was, uh, he was impressive to me, I guess he's, he's growing on me a little bit. Um, going to a homicide being on the roll, Gabe on commentary during this match says that homicides, the MVP of ring of honor in 2004, he clearly means 2003, but I think that's the first time that Gabe uses that and he'll, He'll continue to push that in like media interviews and commentary. I think that, and I think you can make a strong case that very uh, strong case, yeah. This, but you know, I think the final word on that will be when we do our honor awards in a couple episodes. You know, yes. We'll, where, we'll the, where, 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 the authority? Yeah, fifteen years later. Yep. But um, Gabe also mentions on commentary that uh, John Walters is officially going to the singles route because Tony Mamaluke is no longer in Ring of Honor. Oh, he doesn't man. say why Tony Mamaluke isn't. I looked it up. I- around this time, Mamaluke relocated to L.A. to train martial arts in the New Japan Pro Wrestling Anoki Dojo there. So oh, that's cool. why he left, I guess. Yeah. I, um, I just, the, the concept that he's officially in the tag team – in the singles ranks is funny to me though because like, come on. that 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 was He was not in the tag team ranks. <laughs> Like he he he'd been building up a singles feud, mostly wrestling in singles matches and being treated like a single star for almost the entire time. What the the purists had three matches. Three matches. They went two and uh, Matt. You cannot besmirch the epic history 
the three match history of the purists. <laughs> Rest in peace, my good sons. But like Walters, um, well, like th- that was over like what four months, five months, and Walters was at every show during that entire time. So what was he doing? <laughs> Wrestling singles matches. And it's another example of how the present versus the future is so weird. Like you would say yeah, of those two. Tony Mamaluke is the present, yet he was the one not getting booked for every show. It was John Walters was the regular. Um, the only other couple things I want to mention about this match is, the, did you notice there was a ton of room between the ring and the guardrail for once? Like such a rarity in the shows we've been seeing. To the, I was like shocked when Homicide did his great tope con hilo, and for once he did not end up hitting the guardrail or the crowd. Like that must have been a special day for homicide like oh thank god that actually must sorry that actually must be the weird must be the weirdest thing for guys who go from like the indies to wwe is like oh my god what do i do with all this room yeah exactly like all of a sudden i no longer ever have to worry about oh i am going to maybe break my ankle like falling on a guardrail the ring is big the aisle is big the air the ringside area is big like oh my god they must be they must feel like they must feel lonely with all that empty space. <laughs> and the only, the other thing is, if you watch this match, get ready for some gross body horror because maybe the the worst back rake or best back rake I've ever seen, he actually draws blood from John Walter's back. John Walter's bleeds from his back from a back rake. It's I, I get skeeved out by back stuff. I used to know a girl who liked picking off dead sunburnt skin off backs. I... I like was wincing watching this match because Joe Sposto, yeah, yeah. Joe Sposto. I think um, we have two new T-shirt ideas for your uh, through the years uh, uh, pro wrestling tea store. We have one shirt, one shirt that could say "Bone to Bone," and another shirt that can say "Get ready for some gross body horror." <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that just still skeeves me out. So let's move on after the match. Homicide and Walters shake hands. So Homicide getting a bit of the endorsement to Walters, although Homicide's a guy who is willing to shake hands. Homicide gets on the mic to call it Steve Carino. I noticed at this point Homicide's mouth was bleeding, so probably took a few stiff shots in this match. Homicide says he's going to make Carino retire tomorrow in their big barbed wire match. And then he tells Steve to kiss his son goodbye because he's never going to see him again after tomorrow. That sounds like more than being retired, Fat. That sounds like murder. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like retirement, you see your son more. (laughs) You're going to retire and also you're never seeing your child again. Now, that's that's a weird retirement. Um, (laughs) Next, we have a very short little Matt Stryker backstage promo. The thing I got out of this is he's grown out his hair a bit. And between that, the stubble and the unibrow, he's really starting to look like a somewhat handsome caveman. It, it's it's kind of a weird look. Uh, Striker aims to beat Xavier tonight. He He's going to win the Field of Honor tournament, and he's going to become Ring of Honor world champion. He'll do two of those things. The the hair does make him look younger. I believe Matt Striker, I mean, not Matt Striker, uh, I believe uh, M- Mike Johnson in his live report says that uh, he describes... Uh, Mark, Matt Stryker now as looking like Vince Russo if he put on muscle and could wrestle. Like I thought that's a weird comparison, but hmm, I not, can kind of see it. Also, I think Matt Stryker is much shorter than Vince Russo. Yeah, probably, sadly. Yeah. Well, not sadly. I mean, height's height. Uh, <laughs> Another shirt. <laughs> uh, height's height. <laughs> this is the catchphrase episode. Um, 
We have a Ring of Honor tag title team title number one contendership scramble match. That's a lot of words. Uh, the SAT defeated Fast Eddie and Hot Stuff Hernandez, Special K of Cloudy and Dixie, and the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke in 9 minutes, 13 seconds, when the SAT pinned Hydro after hitting the Spanish fly. And yes, Hydro was not in the match. It's stupid, and it had to be booked on the fly, because before I throw it to you, Matt, what happened was Cloudy got legit knocked out taking the SAT sp- washing machine spot. This is not the first member of Special K even to be knocked unconscious from that move. Um, Mike Johnson there live wrote, Cloudy was knocked out taking a face first bump off an SAT swinging pendulum submission, which that's not what it is, um, Mike. That's This is the washing machine. And he was rushed to the back. Mike writes, Great. Two shows and two knockouts in Fairfield, Connecticut. H.C. Loke, who put the match together with Tony DeVito, booked to finish on the fly that saw Hydro take the Spanish fly and get pinned. Cloudy was looked over by EMTs and taken to the hospital as a precaution, but was okay. Um, Matt, like, just, that sucked. And what did you think about the match, though, I guess? Uh, Well, the match was very memorable. More memorable than I would have expected, partly because of that. I, um... It's weird that nobody's told the SAT to stop doing that move. Um, it also is annoying because, I mean, I get I get that, like, there's not much you can do in the middle of a match. But, like, right after they did that move on him, like, they started, like, jumping up and down, like, high five and celebrating. Like, yeah, we hit the awesomest move. Like, and did you notice that Gabe on commentary said something like, that's horrible that happened, but maybe if uh, – let me see if I can find the quote. Gabe said something to the effect of, you hate to see that, but maybe if Cloudy wasn't on drugs, he wouldn't have suffered that fate. Yes, I do like remember that. that. I do remember like, that. Victim blaming. <laughs> and also, like, what could he have done like differently if he was not high? I don't know. It's right, well, well, the idea, like wrestling, if wrestling is real, then like these devastating moves are going to devastate you. Exactly. Yeah. And this is again, this is a spot that is already not. I forget it was Angel Dust or Deranged, but already knocked out one person. I guess it's a little bit notable here, where that time was when they did the washing machine, where they held the guy's hands behind his back. This time they let the hands go free, which they've been starting to do it since that first knockout. Cloudy still got knocked unconscious. Right. Well, Cloudy is tiny and very inexperienced. I don't know what experience would have done here, but I imagine being tiny uh, doesn't help. Yeah. And flying at that speed, even if you have your hands out and taking a face-first bump. But, yeah, this was memorable. Um, Well, Hernandez was a star again. He's been gone for a while. I didn't even realize he was going to come back. But he's back, and he was definitely a star in this match. Um, like, just some of the moves that he did, like, um, he was chopping the shit out of pretty much everybody. He lifted Cloudy off the ground by the neck and just, like, flung him over his head. And that move got, like, a crazy standing ovation. I don't know how safe that was either. But even the Carnage crew were, applaud- were applauding that move. Um, and then he followed with a sit-down powerbomb. And then, like... The craziest move to me of the match, uh, besides the washing machine, I guess, was Hernandez. He was lying on his back near the corner, and he has has his feet sticking up in the air. So Eddie, he actually stands on top of Hernandez's feet, like the bottom of Hernandez's feet. And Hernandez basically like bends his knees and like with his legs, flings Eddie in the air 
in like twisting and kind of and he like uh, Eddie like twists and kind of lands on Dixie. I've never seen that move before or since. Uh, I don't know what to call it. I thought it was cool. It was definitely novel. Um, so I think that Hernandez was the star of this match. Um, the most memorable spot was the washing machine, but Hernandez's stuff was pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I thought I, I completely agree. Um, I thought this was a, a good scramble early, which is a little bit standard. But once they started doing just breaking down, I think Hernandez just made this something really like a little bit better than you'd normally expect with all the stuff. Like I, I compare Hernandez. I think I said this to you on when we were talking on Messenger that like. He reminds you of there's the Seinfeld episode where Jerry dates a girl and depending on what the lighting is, she's either the most attractive girl in the world <laughs> or like looks ugly. Yeah. Hernandez is like that in wrestling where depending on the match, he either looks like a can't miss superstar or just a guy. Like and in a, in a match like this, he, he gets he what makes him special, I think, was this was the era before we got used to a million Keithleys of really good wrestlers who were big guys who can do athletic things. That was a bit more rare at this time. Like when we saw a Matt Thompson, like we freaked out because <laughs> it was rare in that rare in that more in that era. And uh, Matt tweet Matt <laughs> and uh, Hernandez here is a big guy. And he can do the fly. He does the big dive over the ropes, but then he can also like, he goes up really easy for some, um, carnage crew spots like he goes up light he also can still project like menace like he can do spots where he seems like a scary ass beater and also do the athletic stuff and a lot of times these days big guys can't do both like they're either the really athletic big guy or they're the really scary big guy he could when he was on his game be like both of those which i think is is a special thing and it's just weird that like I, I am guessing from the, what I've seen of him here in Ring of Honor, he's a guy that he's not well-rounded in, in some senses. He's a guy that if you if you build a match around his strengths, he's going to look amazing. Well, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that his biggest, biggest successes came as a tag team wrestler, where he exactly. had somebody else to do like the the grunt work, I guess. Yeah, like let Homicide do the wrestling and just let you pick your spots. Literally, pick your spots, and. It's – I don't know if it's a shame that he never got bigger than he was or if he fit right where he deserved to be. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird to quantify how talented he was when he is so up and down in that sense. That that spot with Eddie on, on Hernandez's feet, have you ever seen anything like that before? No, and it's so crazy because like if you look at when Eddie flies in the air, like Eddie is not graceful in his flight after that. It looks like like – and he could have gotten hurt on like it, it, it's a risky spot, right? Luck, I think it mostly worked out. Yeah, it did. But yeah, it's a really cool spot. I think I will probably when this is uploaded, post a a gif of that or something because that was a really cool, really cool spot. I guess the only other thing to say here is the SAT. Like, I'm really over them. Not that we've ever been huge fans of them on this show, but. When you hurt multiple people with the same spot, I just have very little sympathy for you. Like, accidents happen in wrestling, but they've hurt two guys now with this spot in a short span of time. And it's just... And and it's like, it's not like it's surprising. Like, it's, it's very obvious that that's a dangerous spot. 
yeah, this is not an AJ Styles incident where, like, 15 years after his career started, in the span of one year, two or three guys got hurt with the Styles Clash, where it's just because that's a weird move where you're not supposed to tuck your head when every other wrestling bump you're trying to tuck your head. This wasn't that. This is, like you said, you can know exactly from watching that spot how it goes wrong. It's not like a crazy, ooh, who could have seen that coming? No, like, it's a surprise when they don't get hurt on that spot. Right. So... Oh, I forgot also, Fred the Elephant Boy from the Howard Stern Show is now a member of Special K. He came out with them. Yeah, and Doug, and Doug goes, yeah, he is a poster child for birth control, which that's like right out of like the Bobby Heenan slash Jerry Lawler like list of burns. Yeah, exactly. And for Howard Stern fans, I used to listen to it when I was younger. Gabe mixes up the backstory of uh, Fred the Elephant Boy with Crackhead Bob, and Doug has to correct him with that, I think. Uh, Fred the Elephant Boy, for those who haven't seen, he was basically just a normal guy who had a really bad speech impediment, who just, his speech, you could under, kind of understand what he said, but it didn't sound great. Uh, Crackhead Bob was a different guy with a speech impediment that, in fact, suffered that speech impediment from, a, I believe, a crack cocaine-related stroke he had. So, yeah, the wonderful world of Howard Stern. Supposedly, he's much more respectable now. <laughs> uh, we go on to... Uh, B.J. Whitmer backstage promo. He's two wins away from winning the Field of Honor. It's just a very generic promo with the one interesting bit being Whitmer saying he thinks Moff has a shot to win, but he thinks Colt is too much of a comedian. So I don't know if that's foreshadowing a little bit of the Prophecy Second City Saints feud. But I thought it was interesting that he was basically giving Moff a little bit of props and Colt being like, well, Colt's nothing, though. Yeah. In Moff's, uh, in Moff's promo, which, well... Yeah, bounce we're backstage, we get the Dan Moff promo. Moff says he needs to win the Field of Honor. He references pissing twice in this promo, so he's the new John Walter. <laughs> uh, he says that the Field of Honor is his tree, and he's going to mark his territory. <laughs> I, I just wrote, what? <laughs> uh, Moff says he hopes it's BJ he beats in the triple threat tonight, because it's him he hates the most. So, he's a nice little... Oh, so go on. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say some nice little foreshadowing here with, like, BJ's kind of giving Moff props because he knows he's going to join the Prophecy while Moff is really hating BJ because he has no idea that BJ's behind, like, the CM Punk Lucy attack. He has no idea BJ's going to join. So I I thought there was a little bit of good foreshadowing here. That's true. Moff did his usual Moff thing in the promo where he's just, like, really angry. Press on the Second City Saints. And then he... uh he calls himself the big dog, which uh, which is like uh, I, um, I I wonder if um, if you can get retroactively sued by WWE. Vince McMahon clearly a huge fan of late two thousand three Ring of Honor. <laughs> well, now he is because of our show. Yeah, um, yeah. Moff definitely continues to, even though he has charisma and and definitely has some ability on promos, he continues to really overuse the loud, quiet, loud dynamic and the seething anger. Thing, but uh, at least yeah. it was definitely shorter than the Bitter Friends Stiffer Enemies promo, and it was definitely more entertaining than the ones from Glory by Honor, where he's sitting with a neck brace. Yes, um, the the mentions of pissing definitely bring this promo up quite a bit. <laughs> uh, present versus future match two of the three of those matches tonight. Christopher Daniels defeats Jimmy Ray via pinfall in 13 minutes 27 seconds after he hits the last rights. Matt, what did you think about this? It's uh, you know a fairly decent amount of time for this. Well, a couple things. It turned out that Daniels was more of the future than Rave was. Um, 
He's still around. Um, exactly. In well, like, well, Rave is too, yes, but but Daniels is like still in around in ROH or was as of like two God days ago. Two, yeah. two, and we don't know what's happening in the future. But this is 15 years later, so I think we could we could say it solidly. Um, the crowd was solidly on Daniel's side, and he was like encouraging them. So again, it's like, what is he? I I still don't know. But I thought Rave he held his own on the mat. Um, the announcers here finally mentioned that Punk needed to focus on Raven instead of Lucy, since Raven is is uh, locked in his dressing room, focused. I guess that maybe explains why there wasn't a Raven promo on the show either. I don't know. They really did not do a lot to push this match, um, <laughs> this main event, if you think about it. Um, but Gabe, of course, was perving on Danger. Um, and Danger interferes on the apron, so Rave kind of like pie faces her off and shoves her off the apron. So the second streak continues. <laughs> 29 for 30. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so Gabe is still treating the prophecy like total heels. You know, he's like, oh, like he, like, like you even mentioned, um, you thought that Gabe was getting outraged because he got shoved off. She got shoved off the apron, but nope, it was because she interfered in the match. By <laughs> what, what did she even do? She like pulled his leg, like like the usual. She Allison Danger distract the the ref, I think, and then she's still staying on the apron. And so Rave quickly gets into like a verbal spat with her and just pie faces her to the floor. And yeah, and Gabe for a second gets mad. I'm like, oh, Gabe's finally had it with this stuff. It's like, nope, just. And then I joked with you that Gabe's would be like, I would love to see a segment where Gabe was watching, like, say, Allison Danger get hit with a chair, and then she, like, knocks into a fan and spills his drink, and Gabe's, like, outraged over, like, how could Allison Danger spill that guy's Coke? Like, how could she do that? Like, look at her bleeding into that guy's Coca-Cola. Like, this is horrible, <laughs> Doug. Or Ray. But... Yeah. It, it's... It's... Uh, that. This is something that also may come up in our year-end awards. Yeah. Again. I would say so. <laughs> um, so, in the meantime, so, like, Daniels is, like, you know, like taking over. Like he hits a spear on Rave's back, which I thought was pretty brutal. But and the crowd cheered him on. And finally, like Rave made a comeback with like uh, over the head belly to belly, bridging back suplex. But the crowd was not into Rave's comeback at all. Um, and then so Daniels he goes back to working on the back. Uh, hits uh, Rave impressed. They do a bunch of roll ups. Uh, Daniels blocks the spinning crossface, which an STO hits the BME and gets the win with the last rights. I thought it was solid. Um, I would say above average. Um, though, uh, like the, 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 I'd say you know among like the better wrestling matches of the night. Um, the crowd was not feeling rave at all, but they were really into Daniels. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely see the upside in rave here, but I definitely also see that he needed to make some modifications, which he does. Yeah, I, I felt this was a bit above a, a bit above average, but nothing. Again, no, too notable. I think the thing I, – I noticed a couple of things, and they're both things I think you noticed that have already mentioned. One is you could play about it on the last show, and you mentioned it on your review of this match, which is Ring of Honor has such a problem around this time period with heels who act like faces, who sometimes then go back to acting like heels. Like what you were talking about, Christopher Daniels, like before the match, if you watch him, he's like walking around, engaging the fans being like, I built this house and the crowd is cheering. Like he's acting like a total face, but yet in the match, like like you mentioned, Gabe's on commentary, acting like he's the most dastardly heel. He's having his manager interfere for him. Yet the way he works the match himself and the way he like keeps prompting the crowd is like a super, baby face maybe a bit of a cocky baby face but a baby face 
And then I felt bad for Jimmy Rave because Jimmy Rave at this point in his career had zero charisma, like good fundamental worker, but at least in Ring of Honor, zero charisma. So even though this was supposed to be, I feel like, one of your classic young wrestler works a veteran and loses, but it's a good match and gets over, I felt like he he looked like such a just a enhancement talent for Christopher Daniels. Even, even though Daniels, I felt, was generous and like he gave him a good amount of offense. Daniels is always, is always good about that. It's just that the crowd was so much on Daniels' side and Daniels had so much charisma compared to Rave at this point that it almost made me feel like Rave lost a step here. Like he just looked like could have been anyone in this match against him. It was, but fundamentally, Jimmy Rave's a really good worker already. Just it's a this was a good fundamentally sound wrestling match. They did dual body part work, like half of Christopher Daniels' matches. Uh, Daniels did a good job selling his arm. He shook it out a ton. He couldn't hold it for a sub, couldn't hold on to a submission with it. It's just, it, 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 I feel like maybe Daniels is too good a worker here in the sense of this felt like a match where Daniels was trying to give a good match, but not like overshadow the main events, which I bet all the wrestlers on the top of the card appreciate. But if I was Jimmy Rave, I probably would have been like, can't we try and go like crazy with the near falls and maybe steal the show? Cause it would probably help my career, Chris. Like, yeah, it, it was, it was a little too reserved. It was just like a good standard mid card match, but J- Jimmy Rave probably needed more than that. That's a good point that I didn't think of. Like, 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 there's nothing wrong with the match. It's just we're used to nowadays where, like, oh, guys make their name because they did some crazy match. Like, uh, people are talking about right around the time of this recording at Final Battle, like Jeff Cobb, who's still fairly new in Ring of Honor, had apparently, like, a crazy 12-minute match with uh, Adam Page. As an opener. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the early matches on the card. But here, you know, Christopher Daniels is not going to do that here. He's going to respect everyone on top and do, like, enough. He's not going to steal the show, but he's not going to leave you unsatisfied. But I feel like if it was two young guys, they would probably go, screw it. Let's just do everything. Um, immediately after the three count, and I mean immediately, a furious CM Punk enters the ring with a Lucy 8 by 10 again. He's demanding answers from Daniels. Punk yet again brings up that Carino told him Daniels is behind the Lucy attack, and he demands Daniels admit it. Daniel says he doesn't care about the Second City Saints because they haven't done a damn thing in Ring of Honor. Unlike the Prophecy, who has already held the world and tag titles in Ring of Honor. That was a pretty good burn, actually. Yeah, I would say uh, so. It's a good point. You can, Daniel says you can only trust Creel as far as you can throw him, and he doesn't float like a javelin. So Daniel's – death comedy Daniel's jam here. He's really thrown out good barbs here. Uh, Daniel says if Punk wants to believe that he was behind the Lucy attack, fine. But the truth is far more intricate. Now, here's the crazy thing I thought, Matt. So Daniel says that, and he clearly, by saying that, indicates he knows something about it. Even Gabe's like, either Gabe or Dung on commentary is like, Daniels knows something about this? And Punk just, like, takes this and walks away and does not confront Daniels the rest of the show. Like, he clearly knows something when he's saying the truth is far more intricate. And Punk's just like, okay, I guess that I'll have to settle for that. Yeah, um, like, like Punk, imagine, Punk does not come off as being particularly smart here. Yeah, like imagine if if I if like uh, your dog was lost, <laughs> and you and you don't even have a dog. But let's say for this purpose, a you have a dog, and b he's lost, and you're like Trevor, 
have you seen my dog? And it's like, I, or have you taken my dog? And I'm like, Matt, let me tell you something. I didn't take your dog. The truth about what happened to your dog, there's a lot more to it. Let me just tell <laughs> you. And you just said, okay, I guess you don't know anything about this and walked away. <laughs> it's like, no, clearly I know something about what's happened to your dog. But for Punk, never again on this show does he confide Contrister to Daniels. He moves on to people like AJ Styles. So, like, just, yeah, worst private investigator. Um, we get a backstage Xavier promo next. Very quick stuff from Xavier. He just says he's going to win the Field of Honor. We then see a shirtless John Walters who had been standing just off camera wearing a dorky hat saying he doesn't respect Xavier and he points out all the times Xavier cheated to beat him. Walters says he wants one more match with Xavier. Xavier says he can beat Walters fair and square. And how about we just do it in uh, your hometown, Walters, of Boston? Walters agrees and he wants a handshake. Xavier walks away without giving him one. All my notes say here is Walters is such an over-serious dork. Like every promo, he just comes off as way too uptight and even when he's in the right. Also, he comes off as a daddy's boy. He talks about his dad again like he did the, a few weeks. He goes at one point like, if we do it one more time, I will be the freaking winner, which is never going to sound cool. And Xavier says that his dad did not teach him how to win, which is a good burn for a daddy's boy. <laughs> yeah, like if- – Walter should have just said, like, my dad taught me that if you lose a bunch of matches, you just guarantee it and you win. But you can't overuse that. No. Like, just, uh, next, we have our final present versus future match. Excuse me. And Josh Daniels defeats Steve Carino via pinfall in 10 minutes, 55 seconds, after Homicide interfered on his behalf and Daniels then hit a flying headbutt. So da- Josh Daniels is the only of the three of these present versus future matches where the future wins, but yet it comes off pretty badly. First, I guess we should mention, before the match, Carino has Bobby Cruz read off a list of midget wrestlers to mock Josh Daniels' short height. Great way, to, great, great way to debut a new wrestler. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like little beavers, little blank, little blank, all these different little wrestlers. Taz. He throws throws in Taz, which gets the big laughs and applause of the crowd. (laughs) I enjoyed that he managed to include Dink, Wink, Pink, Cheesy, Wheezy, and Sleazy, all my favorite mid-90s WWF midgets or little people. Hmm. Um, Much to my delight. Cruz then introduces Carino as a go- as a Godzilla-like six foot one inch. <laughs> um, Mike Johnson, there live, wrote something that must have been edited out of the DVD. He wrote Cruz and ring announcer Stephen DeAngelis did a bit where DeAngelis accused Cruz of carrying Carino's bags. I hated that. I don't I don't see the point of ring announcers doing mini bits like that, especially when the baby face is the one acting like the heel. If anything, DeAngelis should be selling for Carino's crew, not playing tough guy. Leave that for the workers. Uh, I don't remember seeing this on the DVD, so they uh, must have edited that off. Yeah, I feel like I don't have a strong opinion on that yeah, exactly. <laughs> at all. I don't get being that angry about a very brief comedy bit. And judging by the fact that Bobby Cruz ended up taking DeAngelis' job, he should have been angry. Like, yeah. he, Maybe he saw it coming here. I don't know. But um, I felt like this match was – really like a match that a guy has when he knows he has a very tough match the next day. I felt like they did do some big stuff in the second half of this match, but the first half of this match, Carino is just laying a lot during like lying down a lot during spots, really taking his time. He's interacting with the crowd whenever he can. I feel like he's just, he's just trying to get through this match. It it gets to the point where the announcers even say like, 
Is Creel taking Josh Daniels seriously? Is he thinking too much about the match tomorrow night with Homicide? And then the second half of the match, it does pick up. They do some big moves, maybe too big in the sense of like Josh Daniels kicks out of one of an at one at a Northern Lights bomb. Like it goes almost like that um, striker versus just incredible match we covered recently where it goes from like very nothing match to like some big moves near the end. And then we get the, the very end where. The ref is distracted. Homicide runs in. He does the ace crusher to Carino. And Daniels gets the win. And the announcers try and act like this is a huge win for Josh Daniels, even though they, they during the match they were saying, like, is Carino even taking this seriously? And Daniels then wins because of outside interference. I, I felt like this was another present versus future match where the future did not come out away with, like, any ground gained. Yeah, um, hmm. Um, I mostly agree. There are a few uh, differences of opinion, but I want to just first mention one of the biggest boos of the intro was when uh, Bobby Cruz announced that Karina was the MLW champion. Um, <laughs> uh, also, Allison Danger kicked Ray Murrow slash Doug Gentry out of the broadcast booth, quote unquote, and she was in there with Gabe. Gabe immediately asks her to sit on his lap, or, which is disgusting. Um, and Daniel, um, I mean, and danger leaves when Gabe asks if she was involved in the Lucy attack. So that was like pretty pointless. I thought it really, it seems like the only point of that entire thing was for Gabe to perv on her, I guess. Yeah, she was, she was literally there for about a minute. And the only cute point was there was one point where she says somewhere and it's like, you can never trust a Carino. So it's like, oh, wait, because she's Chris's Steve's sister. Like, yeah, where she's yeah. literally there for like a minute or less and gone. Yeah, it was weird. Um, I mostly agree with you about the match. I will say, I, I don't know if I agree that they did too much at the end because unlike with Rave's comeback, the crowd was into Daniels, uh, Josh Daniels' comeback. All these Daniels' are getting me confused. Yeah, it's, um, that's weird, isn't it? But um, yeah, jo- um, Josh Daniels, um, his comeback got it got all, it got over because I thought the match was like super dull and lame from the first half, and then when they started getting into that like one count stuff, like yeah, that's a little bit ridiculous for a guy. I mean, this is literally Josh Daniels' first ROH main show match, right? Uh, was he gonna tag in one match? I, I one show maybe. Uh, um, I'll look. You talk. You keep talking. I'll, would I'll, have been at Wrestle. I can't remember. I remember that he was in the four way at. Um, at uh, uh, the pre-show of Glory by Honor 2. But I don't remember what else he would have been in. Um, but the funny thing is, so he won. He's the one future guy that won. And he's barely in ROH much at all after this. Like I know this is not his last appearance, but he never does anything of note in ROH. Um, I'm, I'm right about that at least, right? I mean, he'll, he'll be a semi-regular in the next year. He faces, remember, Homicide... At Final Battle 2004, right? But does but no, he, he'll never be anything. He's never he's never really like pushed or anything. He's never really yeah. He he almost gets like the the hot stuff Hernandez slick Wagner Brown treatment where he'll show up half the time as a lower mid card guy. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, right. he he didn't look bad. I uh, Shane Hagedorn on uh, an honorable mention said that he's like the creator wrestler template for Davy Richards. Um, <laughs> that which, was a good line. Yeah, which is definitely not wrong. <laughs> so um, that's Josh Daniels. Um, a lot of like you know hard chopping and German suplexes and stuff like that. But the crowd is fully into his comeback, and they're really into it when he wins, even if it is with interference. So I don't think he gains nothing from this match. Um, 
clearly he's not somebody that Gabe was like excited about in the same way that he was excited about uh, some of the other similar guys, um, and certainly not in the same way he was excited about John Walters. But um, yeah, it, this was like a tale of two matches. One of them was kind of terrible. One of them was kind of exciting. Didn't really. It kind. I think it kind of balanced out to something pretty average. Um, I'll, first I'll point out, uh, I just looked it up. Josh Daniels was in, in addition to that pre-show four-way, one Ring of Honor match before this that did make main DVD. That would be a tag team scramble at Tradition Continues. It was Grim Reefer and Slugger versus Danny Doring and Josh Daniels. Okay, yes, Brown, yes, Sanjay yes. Dutt, yeah, and the Ring Crew Express. Got it. So, yeah, a great debut, a very memorable debut for Josh Daniels, mm-hmm. uh, I'm probably a little more down on this match for you because the first half dragged it so bad. But, yeah, some of the work in the second half was cool. I thought Creedle hit, like, a really, really big lariat, like, really hard, good-looking lariat. And it's amazing. Like, sometimes Creedle will kind of lull you into, like, oh, like, you'll kind of think you know him. And then he'll throw out something like that where it's like, Jesus Christ, that's a hard lariat. You don't expect it from him. Well, maybe some people do. I don't. I'll say that. Um... So, yeah, not much more to say about that, I guess, mm-hmm. than – oh, I just want to point out one thing about the commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, Guillotine Legrand, who is part of Creno's entourage, he grabbed Josh Daniels's leg during the match at one point, And as a result, the ref refuses to count Steve Creno's pin attempt that happens moments later. And Gabe says this is great refereeing. And I just wrote, is it? The ref sees interference, doesn't call for the DQ, then gets into an argument with Legrand on the apron for half an hour, which allows Homicide to come in the ring and hit an ace crusher on Crino behind his back. Like, Gabe thinks this is all great, great <laughs> refereeing. Like, uh, I, I, I think that's less than great, but okay. Uh, we follow Crino back through the curtain as he walks through it. The camera follows him. That classic Ring of Honor little trope. Uh, he gets into a pull-apart brawl with Homicide backstage. Creno says he'll fucking kill Homicide. Creno sk- screams that he isn't low-key. Creno scr- oh, Carino- says fuck a lot here. Yeah, this is very potty mouth segment. Uh, I'd even call this segment a fuck fest. <laughs> bone to bone. Creno <laughs> uh, screams at Gabe and Doug that this is bullshit and he quits. Doug actually kind of gets into a bit of an argument with Steve from behind the camera. You don't often hear Doug's voice in these segments, so that was interesting. Yeah, and Creno uh, even calls him Doug. Yeah. I mean, it, they acknowledge Rob the most, and then Gabe's voice you hear from behind the camera a lot, but it's a l- lot rare at this point to actually hear Doug talk. And like you said, yeah, even mention him by name. Because he's trying to go try for a main event tomorrow, Doug. Yeah. Steve says, I was up and you screwed me again. This is why your coming doesn't draw, because you don't put me over like it's supposed to be. Which is, again, I hate when Crino does that kind of walking the line, like insider, wink, wink shit. Right, where it's uh, like there's like. Two guys hate each other. They're going to fight, but also it's fake. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, like saying I was up, you know, that slang for I was going over tonight. Like, just. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote uh, this insider work shoot bullshit sours what was otherwise a segment with really good intensity. Uh, no, no that, one, no wonder low key quit. Yeah, I was about to say that's Creno's lines. No wonder. So even that, like, Creno has to just keep bringing up low key because that's the big news story that happened around this time. So, like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm hip to the inside. I I know about low-key. But that takes us to intermission. And Gary Michael Capetta is backstage. He sheepishly enters the locker room of AJ Styles. And 
we see AJ is browbeating Jimmy Ray for the millionth time for losing a match. Gary asks AJ if he's being a little harsh on Jimmy. AJ says he could have kicked the crap out of Jimmy for not listening to him. AJ says that Jimmy has potential and is a great kid. Another guy who I don't think AJ is that much older than Jimmy Ray, but he just needs a little something. AJ says Rave needs a little edgy. Which I thought was funny. I think it's also funny that AJ Styles is telling somebody that they need to be edgy. <laughs> uh, Gary thinks AJ's being hard on Jimmy. AJ moves on. He says this weekend he's going to become the Ring of Honor world champ and the tag champ. The first guy to do, hold both at the same time. Gary tries to throw to the next next segment when P- CM Punk barges in with his Lucy 8x10 and says, We're not going anywhere, Jimmy Olsen. Punk asked AJ if he saw anything to do with Lucy, and in maybe my favorite line of the night, AJ goes, let me see the picture again. <laughs> like, like, he maybe did not know who Lucy was. Well, like, I, I love her. But I think the, I think the, uh, I think, like, the intimation was he was just trying to perv out on the picture. <laughs> well, which is very, which is obviously just much more of a classic ROH move. Oh, <laughs> then you've turned something that I thought was beautiful, Matt, <laughs> and you've made it ugly by showing me the truth. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, God damn it, Matt. But anyway, AJ quickly has has had enough of Punk's shit. He leaves. And yeah, Punk's world's worst investigation continues where, like, I don't know what Punk is expecting here. Punk is going up to every wrestler on the roster and saying, do you know what happened to Lucy? Is he expecting someone to just say, like, I did it? Like, I haven't told you for months, but now that you, you know, Punk, you a foil because the one thing I thought you'd never do is ask me if I did it. And now I can't lie to you. Like, what? <laughs> well, like, I- well, like you like, or he was hoping for someone who like, will give him the lead. Like, I know what happened. And then Daniels does and he <laughs> ignores it. Like you said, <laughs> he's, he's the freaking Mr. Magoo of detectives. He just like, He's avoiding all logic here. Yeah. But, uh, Field of Honor block a finals. This is whoever gets this wins this match goes to the finals at final battle. Matt Stryker defeats Xavier via pinfall in 13 minutes 52 seconds after he hits the Death Valley driver. I a lot of matches I would say are above average. I thought this was actually maybe even bordering on good, and I think I might like this more than a lot of people because my expectations were so low. This was a match I actually kind of put off watching because I just was not in the mood for this. I felt like Matt Stryker showed really good intensity in this match. He like did something that was lacking in most of these Field of Honor matches, which he actually wrestled this match like it was an important match and meant something to him. He was very just intense, like. Like this was more than just your standard match striker match in terms of how he how he his emoting. Um, I thought it was more of the kind of match match striker likes to wrestle, which it was a bunch of mat work at the start. It had the big sequence of pin attempt of, of pin attempts going back and forth at the end, which striker loves to throw into a, a lot of his matches. I've noticed even had a couple neat little striker spots of stuff like. He grabs Xavier in a headlock and he runs up the turnbuckles and then flips him down into a takedown, which was a cool athletic little thing. He uh, Xavier tries to throw him over the top rope and Stryker takes that into a crotch bump on the ropes. Just like little things like that were a little bit different. I, I think that was an accident because it wasn't really fo- it wasn't really followed up on. Stryker just eventually falls out of the ring and Xavier does something onto him. So I think he was actually just supposed to fall out of the ring. It was an actual shoot crotching. Ouch bone on bone shoot crotching like very crotch related show today mm-hmm. which i'm happy it took us 30 episodes but we finally got there mm-hmm. uh, i thought striker got a fairly nice puffer winning again there's not much like there's not really much of a story to this match it's just 
I thought a good, like an okay, <laughs> I, I, I'm debating with myself how much I even liked it, but I liked it more than I thought I would. It's nothing special, but it, it exceeded my expectations. I'll say that. Yeah, I think I, I mean, like this less than you. Um, it wasn't bad. Wasn't even like, I mean, maybe it was even above average, but I didn't think it was like noticeably better than a couple of the matches from earlier, like the uh, the Daniels and Rave match and matches like that. Like, I didn't think it was too much better than that. Um uh, they were still wondering if Xavier, Xavier was in the prophecy. It's just getting to be funny at this point. Um, also funny is whenever they say, the winner is sure to have his career skyrocket, <laughs> which they also oh. said. Um, oh, God. Something that I can't totally tell if it was funny or not was um, when Xavier was beating on Stryker on the outside of the ring and a fan yells, come on, I hit my wife harder than that. Um, oh. Because... I mean, it's funny in the sense of, oh, Gabe was right to book the to book the way he booked for his audience. They clearly love violence against women. Um, if you build it, they will come, Matt. It seems like, yeah, what came first, the chicken or the violent misogynist? Um, <laughs> so um, the, the, I think the coolest wrestling spot to me in the match was Xavier. He hit a reverse vertical suplex, then floated into like – a camel clutch. That was really cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, Xavier's moves continue to look good. I think his strikes look weak. Um, Striker's strikes look strikingly good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say that for the like the rhythm, but they look like pretty good. I I wouldn't say there's anything striking about those striker strikes. Um. <laughs> um uh, he he makes his comeback with like the the run up suplex, and I do think when you um when you do a run up suplex, well, that's always a really good spot to get the crowd into you, and it's a really good way to do a comeback because you just like pop up off the ground and do it, and that really worked in this match. The crowd actually started chanting for him, which is the first time I've heard a striker chant in a while, um, and he had a really loud roaring forearm <laughs> um, on Xavier, um, and then he did the cobrada for two, and. I, I, I just one thing that I wondered in this match because of the way that his his strike sounded. I'm going to stop with the puns. If is <laughs> did he learn a trick to make them sound loud like just suddenly because either that or he was hitting like way too hard because his strikes seem much louder than they normally do in this match. And I was trying to figure out what was happening. Um, Maybe he like had like a time machine and went to 2018. It was like, wait, you can slap your thigh. Like, I'm going to do this all the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, this I really did not sound like a thigh slap, though. There's just something else. Mm. Um, um, so when, when he finally got the striker, like, uh, on Gabe was doing that thing where he was, like, doing the strategy where he was like, oh, striker should have worked on the knee earlier. That's why Xavier made the ropes, which I guess is good commentary analysis, but it always feels a little cheap to have the announcers being like, well, I know the right way to wrestle. <laughs> but, um, like, when Gorilla Monsoon used to do it, like, at least you could say, like, he was a wrestler. Um but I, I thought the match was well-paced. Um, the thing that I thought took it down was there was just not a lot of heat down the stretch. Um, no. uh, there was more heat for, like, Danny Daniel. I mean, uh, Josh Daniels. Whoa, Danny Daniels, he's coming. You're throwing in a third Daniel. <laughs> it's hard enough to manage two, Matt. I know. You're right. <laughs> but he's coming. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, both guys look solid. Um, just these Field of Honor guys, they're all very dry, save for Colt Cabana. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in the next match. But... I, I thought the match was about slightly above average, is what I would say. It's going by your scale. 
Yeah, I, I think we should have uh, – this is a great time to have a bit of a conversation about some of the, the this Field of Honor stuff, especially because it's starting to wrap up here. And I think what really prompted me to feel like this would be a good spot for that conversation is I have another quote from the Mike Johnson Live report. Uh, this is what Mike Johnson writes. Matt Stryker is one of the guys the Ring of Honor promotion hopes will break through in the next few months, and I could see it as he's working hard to add to his look and character as of late. The promotion has a number of excellent workers who haven't gotten over the the bump yet to break out, but they could at any point if they connect with the audience on the level that a Paul London did. So a few things there. First off, how has Matt Stryker changed his look other than growing out his hair a little bit? And what is he what is Matt Stryker's character? Like he's saying he's worked hard to add to his character. Matt Stryker doesn't have a character. <laughs> yeah. His character is he's Matt Stryker and has a unibrow. His look has changed more than his character. That's for sure. It's, yeah. He, he, grew, he grew facial hair. That's another thing he did. But yeah, you are right. He's not done anything for his character. Like I guess you can argue that his promos have gotten a little bit better. But like they went from like negative 30 to like <laughs> zero, you know? <laughs> um, to me, and again, uh, we talked about this on the last show. I feel he Stryker does get a bit of a pop when he, for winning here, but I feel like Matt Stryker was more over before this tournament started. Definitely, than yeah, definitely. So. Like, yeah, the last time I thought Matt Stryker seemed really over was in that match against Whitmer in Connecticut um, in July or August. And since then, his matches have been pretty dull. And yes, this is probably the best one since then. And I think when Mike Johnson's talking about, like, we got quotes in this episode from both Mike Johnson and Dave Meltzer talking about Ring of Honor, like, pushing these new crop of guys to the top. I think the problem is when you look at B.J. Whitmer, Jimmy Rave, um, Josh Daniels, Matt Stryker, like, all of these guys are very fundamentally solid wrestlers. Like, they're professional, professional wrestlers. But none of them at this point in their careers have hardly any charisma, any distinctive looks. They just look like generic, muscly white guys. Jimmy Rave substitutes the muscles with like a bit of a boyish handsomeness. Um, none of them are good, have any charisma and like, or just, just, just like personality, right? Like yeah. they, no one has any personality. And I feel like this was an interesting, when I'm trying to think of why this, the last stages of 2003 ring of honor, why some parts of it have been a little less, quality i feel like this was the first time in ring of honor's history where they kind of had to do a talent refresh enough guys had left and all the these gabe is clearly trying to push a bunch of these guys and see who rises to the top and the problem is not i just don't think he has the right horses at this point like none of them have the charisma at this point in their careers oh you're gonna oh you're gonna compare whitmer to a horse now huh They have one horse, and a lot of these, I don't know, like ponies aren't doing great. <laughs> but um, like, it, I think what's really interesting and what we'll see is in 2004 when he does – when he gets a bit like a more charismatic, distinctive group of guys in Generation Next, he basically does what he's doing now, but it works. That's a good point. But he also he doesn't do like a weird round-robin like no. tournament thing. But the other thing about the Field of Honor is like there's one guy – who stands out in that tournament as like a superstar, like, you know, that has it all. And it's Colt Cabana. Yeah. And I, I mean, maybe his logic is Cabana does not need the Field of Honor to be a star, but the, the, I feel like the Field of Honor needed Colt Cabana to feel like it was worthwhile. 
And I think it probably took the air out of a lot of people when they didn't end up putting Cabana in the finals. Cabana had a lot of momentum at this point. He's one of the highlights on all the cards. He's not like he's having matches of the year or anything. But, man, he is charismatic. And everyone else in the field of honor, except for maybe Moth, is not charismatic. <laughs> and so it's like it's like a black hole of personality and charisma. And the finals, well, we'll get to like that final segment at the end of the show. But, like, man... Talk about no personality. And, I mean, you don't need – there's a lot of aspects to being a pro wrestler. There's look. There's character. There's promo ability. There's in-ring ability. Not every wrestler in history has needed all of those aspects to be, like, of success. But the fewer of those you have, the better you need to be at the regular ones, like, at the other ones. And I feel like when he when, – when, like, Mike Johnson compares these guys to Paul London – Paul London, I first off, had more charisma than most of these, if not all of these guys. But two, he was such a good wrestler, it didn't matter if he didn't have anything else going for him. These guys are all solid wrestlers, but none of them at this point are good enough to overcome not having like anything else going for them. Yes, I would agree but, with that. That's I mean, I have nothing to add. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I mean it's a statement of fact, so yeah, but Next, we go to the other Field of Honor final, the Block B final, which, since it was a three-way tie going into this, it's a three-way final. BJ Whitmer defeats Colt Cabana and Dan Moff in 747, the old jet plane, when he uh, when Whitmer pins Cabana after he hit his wrist clutch exploder finisher. Matt, what do you think? This was, a, I mean, pretty short for a three-way. How do you think it turned out? Yeah, it was just a spot fest. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was particularly good. Um, it wasn't particularly bad. It's, um, I think that, I feel like the big thing for me was just, like, Cabana just stood out as the best guy. Like, you know, like, the the wrestlers, all three wrestlers are pretty solid, but Cabana's just, like, the best wrestling star, and he should have won. And I feel like if this was WWE, people would be, like, mad about, like, Vince, like, just pushing big guys who are muscular over the guys who are the most talent. You know, Whitmer's not untalented, but... I mean, anybody can see he doesn't have a lot of charisma at this point. He doesn't have a lot of personality, and Cabana is like a star in the making. So I just, it's just one of those deals where it's like you're putting over the wrong guys. And, you know, the post match will like, will show like, you know, more foreshadowing for an angle and stuff. So I guess that is part of the logic. But, you know, all my favorite spots in the match are from Cabana, like when Moff goes for the cannonball, running cannonball on Whitmer, and Cabana just trips him. Yeah, I like it's a the, huge laugh. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I like um, I like how Cabana has like Moff in a cravat while he has Whitmer like in a neck vice by the leg, by the feet. I guess like that's cool stuff. There are a few you know good spots like Whitmer going for an exploder on Colt um, while um, Moff German suplexes him. So like both Colt and BJ go over um, Whitmer escaping the DVD and. The, and hitting a flatliner slash DDT combination on Moff and Colt. You know, just like a lot of like those contrived three-way spots. But, you know, so I guess it was entertaining, but I just thought it was just a bunch of contrived spots, basically, and Cabana should have won. Yeah, the, the couple other fun Colt spots were uh, 
before his uh, match, start, before the match even starts, they do that thing where they slow down the entrance music to, before they shut it off. And Colt starts taking off his ring jacket in slow motion, which the crowd really likes, like it, as his music slows down. And then at the very start of the match, it looks like they're going to do like that weird convoluted three-way lockup that three-ways sometimes do. And then you figure out Colt's like grabbing one hand each of Whitmer and Moth and lacing them together and then just walking away so that they've locked up with each other and Colt's just like in the corner and again yeah all those spots are like super crowd pleasing and I guess it goes to what we were just talking about like the thing all these other guys in the field of honor missing are missing Colt has like buckets of he's memorable he's different from everything else on the show he has a different different element to the shows you know he's just fun and, and funny and doing spots that no one else is doing and yeah, he stands out way more because of that. He's really – this is the year in Ring of Honor he's really, like, started to feel comfortable showing that. You know, his first few matches in Ring of Honor, very little comedy, but he's really realizing now at this point that that's kind of his – that's his thing. That's what's going to make him memorable and stand out. Um I thought this, again, so many, uh, this is a card where there's just so many things that are just, you know, like a little above average. Like I thought this was, I liked it. It was, it was all action. They just, cause they didn't have much time. They just went for it. Uh, I thought it, but I can't really give it much more than that. Cause it's not that long. And, but at the same time, I don't think it should have been longer necessarily. Cause it, I think it, it, it was served well by just being quick and to the point and just all action uh, the only other thing I really remember from this remember from this match is, uh, I think Moth took a really dangerous looking bump where he gets whipped into the ropes by BJ and Colt pulls down the top rope and Moth takes like a really wild looking like just bump like almost like he didn't expect the rope to come down although I'm sure he did but yeah just another of the great ball of somewhat above average but nothing special that this undercard was after the match. Punk once again makes his way to the ring with the Lucy 8x10. He checks on Colt, and then he tells Moth he knows the prophecy is behind this. He wants him to admit it man to man. Moth says there's no love between the prophecy and the Second City Saints, but then he brings up that he already swore on a previous show on his father's grave to Colt that he and everyone else in the prophecy had nothing to do with the attack. There's some little bit of interesting framing when he says this. I don't know if it's intentional or not, where the camera shot is... Colt on one side, I mean, um, Punk on one side, Moff on the other, and Whitmer's in the background standing between them. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, BJ grabs the mic away from Punk and says, this is his time, his victory. He's, like, surprisingly pissed here. Like, maybe the most personality he's had so far in Ring of Honor. Whitmer says, no one gives a crap about Punk's girl, which gets a good pop. And uh, a quick short BJ chant. BJ throws F-bombs at Punk like he's Steve Carino. He accuses him of trying to steal his thunder. And then Punk at this point just goes, geez, somebody's juices are flowing. And then he drops the mic before he tells the camera, that was a steroid joke. Yes. I guess Whitmer was like foreshadowing his evil side um, by by getting so angry about this. But nobody realized it yet. Yeah, and – they do have a bit of history where they had that match that went to a no contest when uh, they uh, Whitmer put, when Punk went through the table and they both got knocked out and then Punk treated uh, Whitmer like really he really demeaned him and stuff like that. So they have in a way built to this turn for a long time. It's just 
I don't really care about it that much. I hate saying, but like they did plant the seed. They did do a good thing in the sense of they planted the seeds and then kind of let it stop focusing on it long enough for you to kind of forget about it, which is what you should do with a turn like this, a surprise. But it's just, I don't really care about a BJ Whitmer CM Punk feud, but um, we move on to the ring of honor tag team title match. The Briscoes make their first successful defense of the titles. They defeat AJ Styles and Samoa Joe in 15 minutes, 52 seconds, when Mark Briscoe pins Samoa Joe after hitting a shooting star press. All right, so I am happy to say this match was not above average. I thought this was outright. This was a great match. And the funny thing is, to me, it's a great match, and I can't... I don't even... Like, there's not, like, a lot of specifics. It's just... It's four guys that are really talented, and it feels like they're all having a really good night. Like, a lot of times you see good guys, and it's just, like, what you expect. I feel like everyone is just on their game on this night, especially, like, the early sequences with uh, Mark Briscoe and AJ and Joe. Like, they're just doing, like, little tiny innovative things, and they're bumping really well, and everything is – this match is just running like a well-oiled machine. It's just – a really fun match. And I would say this is the best tag team match in ring of honor history. They don't have a lot of competition. I mean, up to this point, they don't have a lot of competition up to this point, but it's still, there's just so many cool little things like, uh, at one point, Mark tries to kip up out of an arm lock that AJ has him in, and AJ just drops all his weight on him mid kip up, which I've never seen before. Um, just AJ and Mark did a lot of really cool things at the start that made me want to see them have a singles match. Uh, there's a, a sequence between Joe and Mark Briscoe where Mark does a fly knee to the back of Joe while Joe's standing. Then he hits hard forearms to Joe, and then Joe does the STO out of the corner when Punk when um, Mark runs at him, and it's all like just so hard hitting looking. Uh, AJ and Joe do stereo dives, and. Uh, Okay, one other thing I really liked about the match before I throw it to you is what I liked is other than the end, which there's a miscommunication spot at the end that leads to the finish. Before that, they didn't do the standard like dream partners thing where like these two aren't on the same page or they're miscommunicating a ton. What I loved is like before that one spot, AJ and Joe were actually like a really good team together to the point where like Joe was directing AJ around like, hey, you do the Olay kick. And like they were doing the stereo dives and all that stuff like I like that uh, it wasn't the typical, oh, you can tell these guys have never teamed together before. It was like, no, they're both really awesome, and they're awesome together. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, a um, couple things. I like the match a lot, too. A um, couple things. Joe is, like, um, now has dyed his hair like back to his normal, natural, like, dark hair color. So he has a real classic Samoa Joe champion look that I think most of us associate with him from the era. And I think he sticks with that look. Um for a while. And, and maybe he dyes his hair blonde again. I, I don't remember actually. But um, that's worth noting. But yeah, I think that one thing that the match has going for it is that there's actually a clear heel, heel face dynamic here. Like the Briscoes are definitely the heels and AJ and Joe are definitely the faces and they do a lot of baby face spots. Like, like you mentioned the crisscross stereo dives is really good. And then Joe hits an Ole Ole kick and then AJ hits his own Ole Ole kick and the crowd loves that. And the match just keeps moving. And I was impressed enough to the, um, to the point where actually I mentioned to you the other night, um, 
have the Briscoes really even gotten that much better since then? Like, I like they were really awesome. We talked about it when they had their match against each other in 2002, which was off the charts. Um, it was your match of the year for 2002, wasn't it? Or like your second best match it, of the year? It was my. I had the three way as my match of the year, but I believe uh, you liked no, it more than than Danielson versus Loki. So no, that says no, a lot. No, I I think it was Jay Mark Danielson Loki, and then the three way or. It was somewhere in those three. I'll have to review. I don't even remember my top three, but it was in my top three for sure. Yeah, and and like we mentioned, like they probably haven't had a better match against each other, but like obviously they're much more fully fleshed out personalities. They're much more comfortable on the mic and portraying characters because they're you know adults. Um, but as far as like in the ring, like if they did this match again, would it be better now than it was then if we they were working with the same AJ and Joe? I don't necessarily know that it would be. Um, they did a lot of little things really, really well back then. Like they were just like really fully formed wrestlers. Like that, the switcheroo spot that they did was really good, um, where um, Jay like dragged Mark out of the ring and took his place. Um, yeah, that's just really clever, you know, heel stuff. You know, I wonder how much of that they got from Jim Cornette. Like, it's hard to know, like. Whether, whether how much of Jim Cornette's mentorship of them was just like kayfabe and how much they were actually getting mentored by Jim Cornette during this time. Because obviously he wasn't here, but I'm sure he talked to them a lot at the previous show. Um, but I, um, you know, I love the um, AJ when he did the, you know, the double, the double backbreaker springboard knee, uh, when they did the double backbreaker uh, springboard knee combo on AJ, like just really good stuff. Um, I also really like the finishing sequence. Um, like just um, where uh, in the choke. Uh, okay, well, actually, I should go back up. My favorite spot um, of the whole match was AJ was going for the Styles Clash on Mark, while Joe got Jay in the choke, and while in the choke, Jay saved Mark by kicking Styles in the face. Um, that was I, so awesome. I thought that was just such a great spot. And then uh, he jawbreakered out of the choke. Uh, Mark hit the Uranagi and Joe just like popped up, which I thought was awesome. But and then he then um, did a few suplexes, and that's when AJ accidentally hits the discus clothesline, and that's when Jay holds down Joe for the shooting star press. I also loved, you know, just the the simple the simple booking but effective booking of Mark getting the pin on Joe, leading to a title match. Like there's a trend of Joe losing in these tag team matches. Um, and, you know, maybe you say that's a very, like, cheap way to do it all the time because they do it a lot over the next, like, year or so. Like, either in four ways or tag team matches, Joe loses, sets up a challenger, he, Joe wins the singles match. But it's effective. It works every time. It adds challengers. It makes sense. And what I liked about it is, you know, the idea is that Joe is feuding with the Briscoes. So why not make both Briscoes a threat to him and not just Jay? You know, clearly they, they're treating Jay as the bigger threat, but it's good that, you know, now Mark can be a threat to him also. I really like what they did here. I thought everybody looked really good. I thought this was a really good match. I agree with you. It was the best ROH tag match so far, even though it seems that they continue to hype up the Red and AJ series more even after this. I think this was um, this was the best tag team match they had in the company uh, so far. And it, and it's funny because like this match doesn't necessarily have a ton of story to it, or it, like when I when I said earlier, like it's hard to describe. It's just four guys having doing a lot of really cool stuff, but it just it's also well done, and they're also talented. And like the spot you mentioned, where the where the Yakuza kick breaks up the Silas Clash, that was such a cool spot. And 
I agree with you about the booking. I think this is really good gay booking in the sense of the feud is the Briscoes versus Samoa Joe, but it's also kind of, you know, it's still setting up the end of the feud is still where it began, which is Joe versus Jay Briscoe. And I like the idea of, you know, when you, when you have Mark face Joe, it gives you a way to stretch out the feud without giving away that second Jay Joe match just yet. And on top of that, it happens at final battle. And you would think you always want Joe as a world title guy to generally, you want all his matches to be big matches. That would be one of the draws on the show. And at this point in their careers, Mark Briscoe versus Samoa Joe probably isn't like a top of the card drawing match, but because it's final battle and it's going to be full of all Japan guys. And that's the big draw. Like that's the perfect show for this match because it's not, you don't need Joe to be in a big drawing position. In fact, he's going to be in the first half of the card in with this match. So it's a, I thought that's a really smart booking the way he just like arranged how this match is going to come about and where it is in the schedule. And yeah, I would say like, I don't do star rings, but I would give this like four and a quarter. I just want to give an idea of like when I'm saying it's the greatest ring of honor tag match, there hasn't been a lot of great ones or maybe any before this. So it's not like an all time classic match, but it's just really fun. It's worth seeing. And I think I, you, I think you liked it even more than I did. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I really, I was surprised how much I liked this. And Joe has, if you listen to the old Ring of Honor Samoa Joe shoot interview, he has a lot of, he has some really nice things to say about this too. I believe he says, of the three dream tags he does against the Briscoes in this feud, which he's going to team up with Danielson to wrestle the Briscoes and then Jerry Lynn. I believe he says this is his favorite. Yeah, so I mean, I've seen all of them, and this one is easily the best. Yeah, well, that's a little disappointing though, because then not much—that's not as much to look forward to then. But we'll, well, we'll see. Well, maybe those other matches are four stars. Yeah, they could still be great. But um, also, Joe's intensity here was really great. Did you see that one point where he had a Mark in the STF, and he's just screaming at Mark, "I fucking own you, boy!" And then he starts laughing like a villain from like a, a cheesy action movie. It's just like I would have shit my pants if someone like Joe did that. To <laughs> yes. Me. Just so fucking intense in the in the best way. Um, yeah, great match. Ends with the munica- miscommunication spot that, you know, allows the Briscoes to win. After the match, uh, there's some handshakes between the two teams. Joe and AJ get into an argument. AJ shoves Joe, and they both pie-face each other before AJ walks away saying, tomorrow, that belt's mine. Um, AJ and Joe get bone to bone right at the end of the of the match to <laughs> set up tomorrow's. But they, when, I, when I say bone to bone, I'm talking about their nose bones. <laughs> and I also should say we already talked about this privately, but I completely agree with that. Like the Briscoes are interesting, where their characters have gotten better. But I think in ring they were pretty much fully formed by this point in their careers. Right. They're they're, like, they're yeah, like you mentioned, like they like some of like maybe like the the power stuff, they as they get bigger, like literally as like yeah. they become adults, they like stuff they, like the double tackle spot gets right. added. But really in terms of quality, like and, and I don't want to say this is a bad thing about the Briscoes. The Briscoes are a great tag team, and they've been a great tag team for over a decade now. But I think what me and Matt were talking about privately is we were just saying if if the, you would think watching them as teenagers, like if they're this good when they're like nineteen and twenty and eighteen, like if they progress like most wrestlers do, they will be the greatest wrestlers of all time. And I think for the most part, they just stayed at this really good quality in the ring for their entire career. Right, and we kind of said part of it is just they haven't had a chance to be in all that many places, at least not for like any extended period of time. 
And I think you probably need that to really get to that, like, top greatest of all time level. But, hey, they don't need to be the greatest of all time. They're really good. Yeah, like, the Briscoes are just almost like a utility at this point. You just take it for granted. Like, oh, the Briscoes are good. I mean, the Briscoes just won their 10th Ring of Honor tag team titles. They're, they're just – they're a team that – they're des- they they would probably have been well served with a change in the last few years. I would but, agree with that. Or, but that leaves us with the main event, the lottery from hell, what cage match called a old school steel, steel cage match. CM Punk defeated Raven in 16 minutes, six seconds when he escaped the cage. Although the rules was this match, he also could have pinned Raven, but he did escape the cage. And Matt... Did you feel like this match was better than the Beating the Odds cage match? Yes, but not by as big of a margin as I would have expected, if that makes sense. Like, I thought that the edited version of that match was not quite as bad as I remembered or expected, I should say. And this match was not quite that great. Like, so this was better, but not not that much better. Um, Some notable things... um, Punk, during his entrance, said, this is for Lucy, which it doesn't make sense because, you know, you should be like, oh, this is to end my feud with this guy that I've hated for a year. (laughs) But they really play down the fact, like, well, I shouldn't say the announcers do, but Punk really plays down the fact that he's had a really serious blood feud with Raven for a long time. Um, Meanwhile, Raven has Punk Sucks S-U-X written in, like, paint on his torso. (laughs) Cool, I guess. I don't know. Um, Cool, I guess, is my new favorite Matt catchphrase. Cool, I guess? It was the most... That was, like, the kindest thing you've ever said. Oh, thank you. Um, Like, like to Raven, of all people. Yeah. Punk, like, he, he jumped Raven as he tried to get into the cage, so they started off fighting outside the cage. So... The match in Boston in August, or I mean, I guess it was September actually, right? Uh, beating the odds, they um, that was um, that was all about lots of different weapons. This match was about one weapon in particular, that being a chair. Man, did they use a chair a lot in this match? There was so much stuff with the chair. Both guys bladed because they got the chair booted into their face. Punk went for a triple jump mood salt and Raven threw the chair at him. At one point, the chair was propped up in the corner and Punk like, like was like doing like running like knees into Raven and Raven moved and Punk needed the chair. At another point, um, Raven pile drove Punk on the chair. They both hit drop toe holds into the chair. This was like a cage slash chairs match. It would be perfect at TLC, uh, which is happening while we record this. Um, Lots and lots of chairs. The other noteworthy thing is um, that the announcers were really making fun of Punk for crying as he confronted BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff about the, or Dan Moff, I guess, about the, uh, about the Lucy thing. He like had like, he, his voice cracked like he was about to cry. So the announcers are both like, what a sissy, what a baby, there's no crying in wrestling, how could you cry over a girl? Like, just the stupidest shit. Um, so, that, so that was happening. Um, Someone tell Ric Flair there's no crying in wrestling. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, there was just a lot of chair stuff. The heat was not great for this match. And who could blame the crowd? One of the participants in the match over and over again came out to... Tell the crowd to pay attention to something completely different from this match. Um, but Raven was working hard here. 
but the intensity of the feud was just gone. Like the just like the, it was just too far past like the prime of the feud. The wrestlers weren't really selling the feud, so the crowd wasn't really treat. And also, I guess it was a long night, so the crowd wasn't really treating this like the intense conclusion to a blood feud. It was well booked, I suppose, um, but it was very basic. Um, I think they overdid it with the chair. The finish was a little bit silly in the sense of the door was wide open and Punk climbed up to get out of the cage, which led to Punk being crotched on the door, which led to Raven kind of trying to walk out, which led to Punk like like swinging the door to slam in Raven's head and then dropped out off the door to win the match. Um, I don't have too much particularly negative to say about the match itself. I just think that the scene that they painted like to or the scene that they set was not conducive to having a match as intense as they would have liked it and um i don't know there's a lot of chair stuff i feel like they too much chair stuff but it was i mean it was all right i guess the match was all right i guess that is how i would describe it i i thought the match was good but nothing like like if i'm if i'm transitioning to the evil world of star rings like Three and a quarter, maybe. Something yeah, like I, that. I, I would not go that high. I would maybe go three and a quarter. No, I, that's what I'm saying, too. Three and a quarter. Oh, for some reason, I thought you said three and three quarters. Yeah, you're right. No, three no, and, no, 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 no. Yes, three, three and a quarter sounds about right. Three stars, yeah. three and a quarter stars. That sounds right. They worked hard. But I completely... <laughs> uh, uh, that would be a funny gimmick, though, if every time you gave a star rating, I'd be like, no, I disagree, and then just said the same star rating that you said. <laughs> No, what you're what I'm trying to say is it's three and a quarter. No, but um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you on like the 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 thing I got coming out of this match was they went maybe two or three shows too too far on this feud. Like the this does not feel like the epic conclusion to a long running feud that put CM Punk on the map to a large group of wrestling fans. I think the, I th- I think that it was like. They wanted the uh, beating the odds match to be the end, but then they were like, "Oh, that sucked. I think we have to do it again." <laughs> that's exactly what I uh, I agree. I think that's what it was. This feels like basically them just saying, "Well, we can't end on that note. We have to do it again." And they they succeed in that it's a better wrestling match, but all of the energy and passion is gone. Like, like you said, the crowd is surprisingly not that into that. They'll occasionally pop for something, but, and, and Connecticut has, even though this feuds, bit, I think has outlived its welcome. The, this match has never come to Connecticut yet, as far as I know. So mm-hmm. for them, it, it should be new and they pop for the cage match initially, but it, it's a standard cage match with, you know, Punk, it's like a little bit of a slower pace than some matches because Ravens is a little bit slower. Lots of chair spots, like you said. Punk does a leg drop off the top of the cage. It's the big spot, but Raven rolls out of the way. I mean, it, it's it's a fine standard cage match, but yeah, yeah, like um, you know what it feels like is it feels like when you walk if you go to a WWE house show. And you watch a match between two guys in a feud at the house show where it's technically like a good match, but it doesn't feel like there's no emotion to it. It's, you can tell it's the same match they've done 20 times in 20 other cities. That's what this felt like. It felt like two guys that have gotten familiar with each other and they're just doing what they do. And, you know, this was built as the conclusion to an epic feud. And it shouldn't, it should feel like more than that, but it doesn't. And, the Gabe thing is so – the Gabe thing on commentary, going back to what you said on the last show about how so many of the heels 
the heel thing is so up and down now. Like Gabe calling down CM Punk for being worried about Lucy isn't being worried about your friend who got mysteriously attacked like a good thing. Like Gabe goes so crazy on the show about how Punk is such a pussy and he should just get over it and stuff like of all the things Punk does, him caring about a friend is not a heel thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, they, 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 it's and also just like Gabe and Doug are such dorks. Like to be like, there's no crying. What a wuss! Like, come on! Like, like, are they trying to heal themselves here? I can't even tell. And they cared about this angle two or three shows ago too. Like, it, it's just. It's one of those things they just change from change from one thing to the other. There's no subtlety or nuance. It's just them ch- being schizophrenic. Like a few shows ago, it was one way. Now that they've decided that Punk's got to be heel again, and you know now, oh, it's, why does he keep whining about this? Who cares? You know, who cares if she's dead in the ditch? We don't care. Whatever. <laughs> you know, like. Um, and I and I guess one other thing to notice that we haven't brought up is the way this is shot. You can see there, Doug and one other camera guy with handhelds are there around the cage, but almost all of this match, the way we see it, is the hard cam. And you don't get a great view of the action from that. The mesh of the cage, you can see what's going on, but it's not a great view. And it's really weird and annoying to see a match where 90 or 95% of it is the hard cam, yet you're seeing two guys filming it at ringside. But I guess they talked about this a bit on an honorable mention where um, I think they said one of the uh, camera guys later on in Ring of Honor would think to cut some holes in the cage Uh so that you could shoot through the cage. But they did not do that at this point. And I guess the problem is when you're shooting that close to the mesh cage, unless you go through the annoying trouble of setting the the cameras to manual focus, cameras just want to focus on the mesh cage and not the wrestlers in the match. But it's sad because they must have discovered that shooting this match then because there are two guys shooting the whole match at ringside, but they don't use almost any of what they shoot. It's yeah. really weird. Yeah, uh, that is a – that is that I feel like that does take away. But, I mean, I feel like it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Yeah, it doesn't feel that much, but it almost feels like you're watching like a fan cam. Yeah. Because it's all just the hard cam. So um, after the match – Punk gets on the mic again. He says, cell phone bill to Lucy, $500 a month, beating your arch nemesis at his own game, priceless. So he's using the old Visa credit card um, catchphrases. But again, it goes to your point. By the end of this feud, just on this one night, it's completely turned into being all about Lucy. Like – Punk was doing these promos about how you remind me of my alcoholic dad and I have to destroy you. And now he's making jokes about like, oh, I sure have to call Lucy and it costs a lot of money. Like, like Raven's such an afterthought here. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, um, it's weird. I, like, I wouldn't think ROH would do something that blatantly like disregarding their own booking, but they did. We have the evidence. It's, we have the proof. It's this DVD. So Punk says he will find out who took out Lucy if it's the last thing he does. He mentions, you know, they have a show tomorrow night on the double shot. And now we go to a very special, unintentionally hilarious backstage segment where Gary Michael Capetta is backstage at a table 
for a contract signing between Matt Stryker and BJ Whitmer, uh, Gary thanks many of the wrestling journalists that are there off camera, including Mike Johnson and Dave Meltzer, who I can tell you was not there. Like I, the balls on them to be like, oh yeah, Dave Meltzer, Mike Johnson, all the all the George Napolitano. They said like when I heard it, I was like, is are they going to are they they trying to be funny? Because it's like you're not gonna you're first of all like why would you try to be funny? I thought you want to take this seriously. Second of all, you're not gonna get too funny when you got Matt Stryker and BJ Whitmer there. Sorry. And it's so rinky-dink, like, they're clearly just in, like, in the backstage hallway with a table. It looks like, like, BJ Whitmer, Matt Stryker, and Gary Michael Capetta are starting a lemonade stand. And this is, like, their big, like, oh, contract site with all the big names are here to watch. I feel and- like, I feel like Gary Michael Capetta, like, went into business for himself there. He was like, <laughs> oh, this will be fun. Yeah. Uh, Stryker uh, asks BJ how he could stand for CM Punk stealing his thunder tonight. Uh, BJ says Punk was an inconsiderate prick tonight. He agrees. Stryker says he and BJ have been friends for a long time, and they fought each other in this building for 15 minutes once, and nobody won. He says this upcoming match is the biggest in his career, and he can't handle a tie, a draw, or a loss. BJ says he feels like an NFL team that just won the division playoffs and is now going to the Super Bowl. I wrote, worst Super Bowl ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> BJ says winning the Field of Honor tournament is just as prestigious as winning the Ring of Honor world title. Uh, Gary then ha- has them sign the contract. The match is signed. BJ and Matt shake hands and wish each other good luck. Yeah, they did not have charisma. Yeah, I was going to say, like this is a great preview of what the match is going to be like. Oh God! I'm serious. Um, like it's like I like they, they should have like no like this is just like this is not the right combination of guys if you're going to try to make this like a big deal. Like they're good wrestlers. They don't have charisma. And like the best they really had in them, I think, was that 15 minute like kind of sprint that they had. When you're going to have a long drawn out match, you need guys who have a personality that will, you know, keep the crowd invest- invested. It's very obvious these guys don't have those personalities in 2003. I'm sorry. And not that every tournament ends with a storyline match, but this match needed something. And what, how they're selling this match is basically, at least on this show, is like, oh, we're friends and we both want to win. Like, they don't even try to create, like, an issue or anything. It's just, like, two guys that already don't have a lot of charisma being like, have a good match. I'm going to win. I really want to win. Okay. Like, it really needed something, anything. Do you ever um, – do you remember – this is a very weird reference. But do you remember like the SpaghettiOs commercials from back in like the 90s where like it was like a coach giving a pep talk to a bunch of kids and he was like – and like it was just like he seemed like the worst coach ever because his entire pep talk was, we're going to win. And like he was like – he pulled down a um, – like a chart, and it was like it was like here's the game plan. Are we gonna win? And like, <laughs> I, I don't. Does this sound familiar to you at all? No. But how did the Spaghettios come into play? Were they the O's? I, they might have been. I, it's hard for me to remember. All I, I very much remember that this coach had nothing to say except we're gonna win, and that's what I feel like these guys were saying. It's just like, here's my game plan. I'm gonna win. <laughs> Here's why uh, I need now, to win because I need to win. Like I, I, I now have to look up this ad after because I'm hoping the end of this ad is all the kids getting cans of spaghettios as a reward for winning the game, and then the kids angrily throwing the cans of spaghettios at the coach because they're not going to Dairy Queen. That's exactly what happens. Way. The coach dies from getting hit with <laughs> spaghettios cans. It's very, it's a very mm. sad commercial. But something that's 
I don't know if it's sad, but probably gross. We cut to the final segment of the show. Special K are wandering around backstage, and they find Raven alone in the locker room. He's brooding. Special K tells him he tells him that they need, he needs to cheer up. They hand him a pill bottle, which he appears to pocket. So Raven falling off the wagon. Raven tells them to leave to leave him alone, but leave the girl, which is Becky Bayless. So for those who don't know. There has long been a long-held wrestling rumor that Raven had sex with Becky Bayless when she was well underage. Raven has addressed this. He's denied this on a shoot interview when he was asked about it. But it's been one of those long-held, like, sleazy wrestling rumors. It's sort of and how was, Becky Bayless became known, like, to fans, right? Like, just Yeah, that she was kind of, like, rumored to be, like, a groupie or a fan and that maybe she was involved with Raven or whatever. And so the fact that it appears they're kind of hinting at that here, like, I mean, Matt, I'll just say it's good. Like, it, it's not a good thing to hint at some uh, underage sex, but thankfully, underage sex and Ring of Honor will never be mentioned in the same sentence ever again. This is the last time any controversy like that happens to the company. It's, Man, it's, it's you're, try, you're trying to make me talk about this stuff before we have to talk about it, and it's not going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, a weird way to end the show. And also Raven doesn't really have much of a future in Ring of Honor. So it's weird that they're trying to kind of set up something here. But is he is he back at all after this weekend? I, I don't remember. I know that he was booked for the shows that would end up being Ring of Honor, um, like Reborn or whatever, stage one and stage two. But he gets pulled from them by TNA after the Rob Feinstein scandal. But I think it was mostly just a thing of he he was one of the highest paid like he was getting paid I think fifteen hundred dollars or something a show and I, I I think Ring of Honor felt like they just couldn't justify that unless he was doing something special like the CM Punk feud right right but yet they are trying to kind of give him something here but um, I just don't know what it was but I think they probably just felt eventually like we can't afford you to just wrestle on the mid card and not for nothing like. Right. I think they were made the right call there. <laughs> Absolutely. So that brings us to the end. That brings us to the conclusion of the conclusion. It's not quite strikers striking strikes, but it's something. We watched the, Matt, yes, uh, we watched the entire show from bone to bone. <laughs> Matt, how much meat was on this bone? I thought like I, – I thought the show like was solid in its way. Like there was one like really, really good match. And there wasn't really much on the show that was bad. But I find, like, I just find things a little bit dull right now. It didn't really capture my imagination. I I think the tag title match is actually available on ROH's YouTube, if I'm correct. Um, so you can watch that without seeing anything else on this show. And I don't know. I just, clearly they need something to give them a a shot of adrenaline. It'll come eventually, but I don't know if it'll come that soon. Yeah, they they need Generation Next. They need those guys back. They they need uh, they need help for the undercard, like the top stuff, like the Joe feud, the Joe Briscoe's feud is fun. They they need to fill out the undercard with guys that aren't bland. And you know they're going. The cavalry is going to come, but like you said, it's probably going to take a few more than a couple shows. But like Danielson will start working more in the company again, maybe not every show, but more low key will come back in the second half of next year. And generation next will make a huge difference. I think, but we're not at that point. We're in this weird ground where they're, they're trying to push a crop of new guys. And as we've talked about they're they're just not exciting at least at this point. Right. And I felt like this show was, 
it, it's weird. It was a two, tale of two shows for me because on one hand, I felt like the undercard was a little bit better than I remembered. Nothing special, but perfectly easy to watch. I really I thought the tag match is great. The main event is fine, if kind of weird how it feels. But at the same time, if, if there's a couple things about that felt like raw in a bad way, like the weird punk angle that goes nowhere that is threaded throughout the show and is kind of pointless. Seems like the only the, point was to foreshadow the Whitmer thing. Yeah, and, and even the contract signing. Like, how many times does Ring of Honor do a contract signing? Like, there were some weird, almost raw-ish elements of this. It was weird. Like, it's just... They're, they're building up things that I'm not excited about. Like, the the Briscoe-Joe feud, I'm excited about. Like, I'm not interested in the Field of Honor finals. I'm not interested in who in the Lucy angle. You know, I'm right. not in, really interested in the John Walters-Xavier feud. But... We'll see, you know, there's going to be, these shows are not bad at this point, even if we're in a bit of a lull, and there's plenty of exciting stuff coming up, especially the next show we'll cover is the second last show of the year. We're almost through 2003, second last show of the year at War of the Wire. How's this for a top two matches on a card? You have Samoa Joe versus AJ Styles for the Ring of Honor world title, and you have Homicide versus Steve Carino in a no-rope barbed wire match, that's a pretty good top two match. Yeah, that's, that's something I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to that next show, to see uh, how those two matches deliver. And for plugs, as usual, if you want to contact us, it's through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H, um, at Trevor Dame, or at Mayor MGF as our Twitters. Uh, we post sometimes on figure four message board voices of wrestling pro wrestling only we look first post on the plug sections and one last thing i guess since we have a bit of time but want to still end this in a timely fashion but i thought we should do it now because it's the end of the year rather than um what we would do on final battle episode because that's would be loaded up is we should probably just thank everyone again since the end of the year um anyone that's ever mentioned us or at all it's been super nice thanks to everybody who has i want to thank all our guests this year uh justin shapiro alan cunahan dr keith joe sposto joe gagney like we've been super lucky having like i I i'll say it again the most charming pound for pound group of guests any podcast has like the charm per square inch the charm per guest through the roof this year they've all been great um, I want to thank the Cubs fan for originally hosting us. I want to thank uh, Chad at, place, at Pro Wrestling Only slash Place to Be Nation, um, Brad who works there, Charles from Pro Wrestling Only, everyone that does a job uploading our stuff, promoting our stuff, and just thank you everybody who's uh, listened. And, and thank you, Trevor, for continuing to be the real host of the show and letting me uh, kind of join him to uh, – bullshit about this while you're doing all the real work so i appreciate oh, that oh, a lot oh, you shut up you goddamn <laughs> oh god you <laughs> go to break a bones no uh, <laughs> seriously thank you i forgot i thank you like seriously the show does not exist without matt he's the only guy i could imagine doing it with and i like matt's the only guy i mean justin asked me to do a brief guest spot on one of his pot on his podcast but matt is the only person that's ever asked me to do a podcast with him before this show. Then I got a couple guest spots on other shows. So like Matt, you are the only one that saw anything in me. There's no crying in podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 
thank you everybody have a happy new year if we don't come back till then um yeah, thank you everybody here's to another three or four episodes of the show <laughs> <laughs> i love that joke bye